Welcome to Talk Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So over the past few episodes, you may have heard me speak excitedly of something called the free energy principle, something which seems to be a unifying principle of life. My deep interest in the topic is part of a larger project. Over the years, I've become increasingly interested in, or even obsessed with, ethics, morality, and the relationship to our understanding of the material world. Specifically, the relationship between energy, information, complexity, and what it means for how we structure our societies and the ethics that should guide them. This has led me to return to university to study philosophy. Our deepening scientific understanding is enabling us to accomplish remarkable feats. We can now edit the code of life, harness the energy of the building blocks of the universe, and terraform entire planets, our own being the most obvious example, to list just a few of our capabilities. The array of tools, some of which our ancestors would see to be in the arsenal of the gods, present us with incredible opportunities. However, with our capacity for greatness comes the potential for disastrous consequences. In the process of our ascendance as a species, we are quickly beginning to realize that if we wish to survive, we need to include the natural world into our ethical and legal frameworks and aggressively defend its sanctity. Our primal moral intuitions forged over millions of years of evolution are simply not good enough to guide us as we live as an interconnected planetary species responsible for the well-being of the natural systems we are inextricably embedded within. We're at a point in time where we need an ethic for all of life, not one that is solely focused on the matters of man. I think this is one of the greatest and most fascinating challenges of our times. As we move into the role of custodians of planet Earth, our ethics must be informed by the fundamental laws of the universe that have guided life's evolution across the ages. Or we risk not only the survival of our species, but the countless other forms of life we share the planet with. One of the most important of these natural laws involves energy. Energy is the currency of life. It animates matter, enabling complex configurations of molecules, like you and I, to manipulate the world around us in the service of our goals namely survival and reproduction. The natural laws associated with the flow of energy in the universe are that of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is conservation of energy, that the amount of energy in an isolated system is fixed. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can just flow from one place to another. As far as we know, the universe has a fixed quantity of energy, the flow of which across billions of years is responsible for everything that we can see in the universe and our own lives. The second law of thermodynamics describes the natural constraints of this flow of energy across the universe. The law basically states that every time energy is converted from one form to another, the amount of disorder in a closed system increases. This means that, in the longest of runs, more years than we can conceive of, the universe will attain perfect equilibrium, a state of complete disorder. One way of looking at the universe is that it consists of some really hot places and some really cold places. Over time, just like a cup of hot coffee sitting on your kitchen counter will slowly reach room temperature, the temperature of the universe will be completely uniform. It will reach equilibrium. This fact of the universe gives rise to a quantity called entropy, which we use to measure this change. Entropy has a few definitions, one of which being a measurement of how disordered a system is. The higher the entropy, 
the higher the disorder. Through the lens of entropy, life is special. If we were to rank all of the celestial bodies in the universe that we know of, from those that have the lowest entropy to that of the highest, our planet would be first on that list. All because of life. Life is an entropic outlier. What may be a defining characteristic of life is its ability to take in energy and put it to use to maintain form and function, interact with and navigate the world, and reproduce, keeping the unceasing, lapping tide of entropy at bay. Over billions of years, life has successfully waged war against entropy, slowly but surely using energy to evolve more complex manifestations of itself, moving from single-celled organisms to complex social species like our own. No species like Homo sapiens has developed the ability to manipulate the flows of energy to such incredible heights. While we only need roughly 7,000 kilojoules to survive day to day, many 21st century humans use up to 30 times that amount to live our technologically advanced lives. To power our phones, the library of the world, the internet, to develop medicines and grow our food and get access to clean water. All of these things depend on our ability to harness and control the flow of energy. The actions we take that control energy flows to survive and thrive reduce entropy locally, while contributing to an overall increase in the entropy of the universe. One can see life as engaging in a beautiful defiant dance in the face of the cosmic certainty that it will all end. All dances must end, but the joy is in living it. However, if we continue to act as we have been doing, we may bring this dance to an end far earlier than it should. Understanding how energy and, in turn, information flows throughout ecosystems and organisms across the incredible scales of life will help us identify scientific bases for our moral and ethical viewpoints and inform how we structure our emerging global society. While we won't have a moral equation we can plug numbers into and get definitive answers, understanding how the laws of the universe shape our notions of what is right and wrong is an important step as we accept our role as custodians of planet Earth and all of life on it. It's time to take hard-won scientific insights and apply them to the most important questions, like what is good? How does the way matter is organized and the manner in which information and energy flow through its structure influence whether or not we think it is of moral worth? The answers may be something which we have an intuition for. The despair many feel at the degradation of the biosphere, the ecosystems and life forms we are inextricably tied to, is an example of this as is the age-old wisdom of indigenous cultures around the world. The bounds of our moral circle need to expand beyond our species, beyond other sentient beings, and encapsulate all of life. The utilitarian approach of maximizing the well-being of sentient beings isn't sufficient, as it ignores that we are inextricably embedded within the biosphere, and that the achieving of states of well-being is dependent upon how we manipulate energy. We need a set of ethics for all of life, not just conscious organisms. So what would a moral framework formulated in line with our understanding of the natural laws of the universe look like? It's hard to say, but the topic of this episode could be a piece of the puzzle. Today we're exploring the free energy principle. The free energy principle is a formal description of how life resists entropy across scales by minimizing surprise. Surprise here being an information-theoretic view of how unlikely a particular sensory state of an organism is, not the psychological phenomenon of surprise, though they are definitely linked. The free energy principle describes how organisms attempt to reduce the difference between their model of the world and their perception of it. 
The benefits of doing this seems to make intuitive sense, as if your model of the world and your perception of it are in accordance with one another, bad things are just less likely to happen. This knowledge is being used to train artificial intelligence systems and seems to be highly successful. Researchers at King's College London made two artificial intelligent players compete against each other in a version of the first-person shooter Doom. One of the bots was a reward-maximizing agent, the other driven by the free energy principle. According to the researchers, the reward-maximizing agent was demonstrably less robust than the free energy agent, as the latter had learned about its environment far better. I came across the principle a few years ago, though in the reading I've done since then, I haven't really felt that I've understood it. This podcast is an attempt to try and get a deeper understanding on what seems to be a unifying principle of life. Joining me to shed light on this topic is Maxwell Ramstead. Maxwell is a postdoctoral fellow at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal and at the Division of Social and Transcultural Psychiatry at McGill University. He has co-authored several papers in leading journals, which explore the applications of the free energy principle to the dynamics of cognition and the mind, phenomenology, ecology, and sociocultural systems. In our conversation, we cover what is the free energy principle, what is active inference, the 4EA approach to cognition, that being embedded, embodied, inactive, extended, and effective. We cover uh, the topic of entropy and the potential societal implications of the free energy principle. In our talk, Maxwell does refer to some images throughout the show, which at times may be a little bit confusing. If you'd like to see the images that he's referring to, please head to the show notes or watch the interview on YouTube. Before we get into it, if any of you out there listening have any topic recommendations or resources you think I should check out, please reach out. You can do so through my website, samhbarton.com. If you'd like to get updates on future episodes, essays, and see some of the most interesting things I come across on the internet, subscribe to my newsletter on my website. You can also find ways to support the podcast there as well. You can also follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton. And after the longest intro segment I think I've ever done, please enjoy my longest podcast today with Maxwell Ramstead. My name is uh, Maxwell Ramstead. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow um, at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. Um, and I'll be, uh, I'll be staying at McGill for a, uh, for a while. Yeah, I'm also affiliated with McGill University, uh, which is the main university affiliation of the hospital. And I'll be a postdoc in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill um, starting uh, next September. Yeah, so basically my background is in uh, philosophy and cognitive science um, with some additional training in um, computational neuroscience. Um, yeah, so currently I work on um, basically multi-scale active inference, um, so multi-scale multi extensions of uh, applications of the free energy principle um, to uh, basically like systems beyond the brain, so like uh, systems, uh, well, within and beyond the brain, right? So what, what I'm interested in developing is kind of a, a multi-scale approach to cognitive systems. Uh, and that's that's how I got into the free energy principle originally. Um, so I started off in, more interested in um, this this field called neurophenomenology, um, right? So like the the kind of uh, so phenomenology is uh, a philosophical discipline originally, um, and it's about the kind of rigorous uh, description of first person experience. So neurophenomenology was a was a project. It's still ongoing in part, 
um, the, a project to uh, bring together uh, this rigorous description of first person lived experience with uh, you know the neurosciences and other uh, other sciences that might tell us something about how experience comes about like first person lived experience um, yes yeah, so I was working on that for a while and I I was looking for um, a way to talk about um, what I think is like a really central intuition which is that like the, all of the different levels of description of reality are, are like they, they have some grip um, in a way that, that, that that's like, like the, there's, there's an equal dignity to all these different descriptive levels. So like, you know, we are physical systems, right? We're made of atoms. So the laws of, the, you know, the regularities that pertain to the physical world apply to us, but we're also biological creatures. We're made of cells, right? And and we have a psychology, right? And uh, we uh, conglomerate in social groups that have, you know, social and cultural scripts. And so we also have like a, a rich, you know, infinitely ramifying first person experience. And somehow all, all of these things are true at the same time, right? So how can we uh, develop a framework that addresses all of these levels um, yeah, with equal dignity, you know, with, with take, taking each seriously. And so, you know, around 2014, I was looking for um, a kind of glue that would allow me to kind of talk rigorously about all, exactly, about all these levels at the same time. And I, uh, I met uh, Carl Friston, basically, and uh, so the, the rest is kind of history. Uh, it, it really... Uh, it really started me off on my current path, and um, yeah, right now I, I work uh, I work with Carl uh, very closely. Uh, and who who is Carl? Carl Friston. Yeah, uh, but what's what's his what's his significance right. in in this picture? Yeah, right. So Carl Friston is um, I think right now the the most cited living neuroscientist. He's he's known um, in the field. Uh, I mean, for several different reasons. The what is his probably most lasting contribution is, uh, well, so far has been the development of um, basically the statistical packages that are allow us to perform uh, neuroimaging analysis in, uh, in, in in the fMRI modality. So in the 90s, he basically invented statistical parametric mapping, yeah, which is the the main technique used in neuroscience. Uh, so, is that like taking the data and it's like a something that that enables you to like interpret the data or actually make sense of it? Like having right, the data so is one thing, but actually be able to take direct insights. The, the whole framework that I'm going to be explaining it's it's very complicated. It looks very complicated, but conceptually, it's very simple. It, you can explain it with two circles and a line. I like to say. <laughs> Right, so the two circles are uh, data, right, that you have. So observations, states that you can observe or measure, um, and uh, latent or hidden states that caused your data. Right. So I mean, to to just start with the beginning, I guess. Um, so you know, I, I, are you familiar with fMRI neuroimaging? So fMRI. Similar, is, yeah. Functional mag magnetic neuro, yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, basically, an fMRI machine is a big magnet, 
and you you put people in this big machine, and um, it measures it measures a uh, it, the signal that it measures is called the bold signal. It's the blood oxygenation level dependence signal. So this is something to keep in mind whenever you see neuro studies in general. Uh, typically, you're not directly measuring brain activity. So these heat maps of brain activity that you see are not directly measuring brain activity. You're always measuring a proxy for brain activity, right? So in, in fMRI, that proxy is, is the bold signal, this blood oxygenation level dependence signal. So basically, one of the metabolic byproducts of um, neural activity uh, has these interesting magnetic properties that we can pick up using these big magnets, right? So you put someone in a big magnet, you, uh, and then you scan their brain using the magnet, and essentially you're picking up uh, a byproduct of oxygen consumption by the brain. So then uh, that's your data. And then what you do using these statistical techniques that Carl uh, and, and colleagues develop is work backwards from this data to uh, basically the, the most probable set of hidden causal factors that generated your data. Uh, yeah, so he's, he, he came up with this in uh, the 90s and continued extending these methods. Um, so, I mean, the, the idea here is always sort of the same, right? So what you're doing is you're writing down um, different alternative um, causal structures or models of the causal structure of the process that generated your data, right? Uh, so th these techniques have been extended uh, recently, and in principle, you can model any kind of data using these kind of techniques. So recently, Carl has uh, used uh, like the newest version of these frameworks, dynamical causal modeling, to to model the spread of uh, COVID as it as it happens. Uh, so in this case, like the the uh, the data that you're using is the raw numbers, uh, like so the total number of cases, total number of deaths, and the, pro the causal process that you're estimating is stuff like, you know, is there confinement? What is the population size? Like all of these different parameters in your model that you're estimating given, given your data. So that's, that's basically like the, the kind of general framework that he developed. Active inference per se gets into the game when you take the same kind of framework and say, okay, what does it look like when the data that I'm trying to explain isn't like neuroimaging data, but it's the actual sensory data that I'm generating as an organism. Like, uh, yeah, so that's, that's active inference in a nutshell. It's, it's a framework to, uh, that extends these modeling techniques in a way that it, it's sort of like, what would it look like if uh, the, the organisms themselves leveraged these strategies to effectively infer the latent causes of their sensory states? So active inference is something that organisms do, but it's, it's not the technique used to measure the sensory data, but it's something that, that organisms do. Like well, we so actively I mean, infer. If, if the framework is correct. So you can, you can think of the active inference framework as this mathematical theoretical apparatus that we're applying to biological systems uh, to understand them. But on the assumption that the framework is correct, um, yeah, active inference is something that living systems engage in basically yeah. uh this kind of so active inference essentially has two sides right on the one hand you're you're trying to infer uh which which kind of constellation of causal factors is currently causing 
my 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 sensory phenomenology right um so yeah on that's on the one hand um and on the other uh and, and this is like a, a crucial point um active inference is about it's a, so this is what makes it different from like older bayesian theories like predictive coding for example it's a theory of active sampling of the world so it's not merely a question of like bayes optimal perception it's a question of um how do I act such that I bring about my preferred observations? Yep. So it's like but this it's, this tie between the entity acting within the environment, taking a sensory input, I trying to understand or identifying what's actually causing what. So it's like this interplay between sensory experience and action, and that's why. I, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it's a it's a formal model of the sensory motor loop is another way to think yeah. about it. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, so the free energy principle, so Carl Friston, what's the relationship between, there's a few ways I want to go about this conversation because I want to talk about cognition and information processing. Um, and I also want to talk about, I mean, the, 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 so the purpose of this podcast is really find out what the hell the free energy principle is and like, what are its applications and how does it actually right. work? Um, because in other podcasts, like I came across the idea and I've just been like very excited about it. And like a few of the podcasts that I've had, I've just like, Oh yeah, this thing kind of applies here. I just kind of give a half baked description of it, which is one of the reasons why I, would, I want to talk to you, just so I actually know what the hell I'm I'm, I'm talking about. Um, so, do you think it would make more sense to to kind of discuss cognition and information processing, and um, you know, dive deeper into active inference, or just start with the free energy principle and um, go from there? What, what do you think makes um, better also, introduction? Uh, it Maybe maybe I can I can show you a few slides. Uh, yeah, um, if if we can discuss if we can describe the slides as well, just because there will be yeah, many yeah. of those who will be, be listening. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, one hundred percent. Let me just pull them up, um, just to give you. I mean, it, it's really just to, to to be able to see it at the same time. Uh, so for for those of you who uh, will be uh, listening, um, the podcast. Um, without any visual support. It's really just the two circles and the line thing that I was discussing <laughs> earlier. Uh, but it's, it's good. It's, it, it's often useful to, to see. Uh, I'm, I'm a visual person anyway. Yeah. I don't know about you, yeah. but I, I find it helpful. Okay, so. Yeah, if anyone wants to check out the, the YouTube video or just photos, I'll like all the photos. And oh, you're going to have to uh, enable screen sharing on my end. Oh, yep, yep. Bloody Zoom. There we are. <laughs> All right. All these uh, privacy features. <laughs> All right. So this is a kind of cartoon tutorial. So this is the, what I was saying earlier, right? Two circles and a line. So what yeah. you have yeah. is you have data, right? Observable states that you have access to. So again, like if you're working in fMRI, for example, your data is your bold signal. Uh, and what we're trying to do is basically uh, go the opposite direction here, right? So causality flows from hidden states to uh, data. You can also think of prediction as going in this way, right? So like if you have a model of how some phenomenon it works, uh, you can predict that you'll be generating this kind of data rather than that kind of data, right? So that's sort of the point of being able to use these predictive models. I mean, you, you see this a lot with the COVID modeling, right? People have a model of how the process the, the propagation process uh, happens. And so that they kind of can project the kinds of, uh, well, data that, that they will be registering in the future, right? So 
uh, causality or prediction moves in this direction and inference moves in that direction. So um, these hidden uh, states or latent causes uh, that are generating our data, what we do is we write a, a model, right, of uh, the basically the relations between the factors such that they generate um, the, the outcome of interest, right? And the variational free energy, I think the easiest way to think about it is that, is that it's, a, it's a measure or more precisely an approximation of how much evidence we have for a model given the data, right? So like uh, you can think of, I don't know, like say two or three alternative models of how some data was generated, right? And the free energy is basically a model of how well, uh, sorry, a, a measure of how well each of the models uh, explains the data. Uh, like, so how much of the variance, for example, you're, you're So when you say explains, you don't mean, do you mean actually explains why it happens or predicts what's going to happen? Like, is it, is it, it's not an explanation of how X it's, causes it's not A causes B, but it's like a predictive thing. explanation. If, if we're going to, if we're going to like draw yeah. from the philosophical literature and talk about like models of explanation. So if you're thinking about mechanistic explanation, th there are a few uh, missing elements here, but basically like what you're, what you're doing is saying, well, given the data that I have, which of these models is most probable given, yeah, like yeah. given the observations that I've made, which of these models is most probable? And the free energy is, is essentially a metric or a measure of that, that the amount of evidence that the, the, the data makes available for, for each of the different models. What? Uh, Sorry, I'll let you continue. Yeah, so I mean, this is the fMRI setup that I, I was discussing earlier, right? Um, so you have a bold signal, uh, you have uh, hidden causes, which in this case are uh, the underlying neurobiological activity. And what you're doing is essentially constructing alternative models of, for example, brain structure or connectivity, right? And then scoring how well each of those models, alternative models, explains the data that you're generating with the assumption that like the, the model that, so it's a kind of, it's, it's an abduct, abductive kind of, uh, or inference to the best explanation kind of framework, or what you're saying is, well, you know, uh, the the model that most probably describes the actual causal process that generated my data is the one associated with uh, the most evidence. Um, yeah. So in in the what, so transposing exactly the same reasoning to the brain, you have this kind of setup, active inference per se, where the data that I'm trying to explain is the, the sensory states of my organism, right? So like the, the states of my retina, right? The states of like my, my auditory uh, organs, like my cochlea and all that, like the, the, my, the state of my, uh, uh, you know, receptor cells in my skin. And the model here isn't the model of, uh, I mean, at, at some stage it might be, but like the, the, the model is ultimately a model of the agent acting in the world. Since mm -hmm. our, our actions are the main driver of uh, our sensory phenomenology. Um, yeah. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the, the framework. And, and in, in all these cases, the free energy is basically a, a measure of evidence. Yeah. So I've got I mean, I two questions. One, I think I'll just put to you my layman's understanding of it. And I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. And then after that, 
I want to know why is it called, why, why is, is free energy the measure? Like why, why that term? Um, so the way I sort of see it, and I think I've described it to, to friends is that, um, organisms, organisms have a model of, they have an internal model of themselves and the world in which they inhabit. And they try to enact, they try to act in the world in such a way to minimize uh, uncertainty or surprise. And mm -hmm. this is kind of the, the mechanism by which it happens. Or this is like the, the description of it. Right. That, well, that you've just been I, I would about. nuance that a bit and say that the free energy principle tells you not just that you have a model, but that you are a model. Right. So uh, in the sense that like, it's not like you carry around, I mean, it, to, to a certain extent you do, right? Like there is something like, uh, a model in the brain, right? Like it's not, it's not quite that. I mean, what we would prefer to say, I think is that like the, the brain embodies parameters of a model, but the whole model is something like the brain's inference activity. So look to, to think of it this way, like the, this, this issue of model has to do with predictability, right? So what does it mean to say that I'm a model of my environment? Well, so look, we're having this conversation, I'm wearing a sweater, right? So you can tell from my wearing a sweater or you can predict from my wearing a sweater that it's, it must be 20 degrees Celsius roughly in my room, maybe a bit less, maybe 15, right? Because it's a sweater. It's not like a, a t-shirt. Uh, so, so there are these like systematic relationships between um, the the organism's phenotype, right, and the state of the environment. These are predictive relationships, essentially. So that's the sense in which you can say that the organism is a statistical model of its environment. It's that so like the physiology of the fish tells you something about the kind of environment that it lives in. So the fish is a statistical model of an underwater environment, right? So, yeah. and, and the fish's phenotype, it becomes extremely unlikely on land, right? Just like I would be very surprised to find myself in water all of a sudden. Hmm. So okay. that, that's the intuitive notion there. It's not just that, and this is where it departs from older classical, like cognitivist theories uh, to an extent. I mean, I, in, in my view, it kind of vindicates you know, classical cognitivist ideas through through the lens of these new, cool, like embodied, inactive uh, kind of mm. stories. But yeah, like on the classical story, like I, I reconstruct an internal model in my head, and that guides my action. Uh, so that that story is still here in part. I mean, you know, clearly, or, as human organisms, we do construct these explicit internal models that we manipulate, and they're the same kinds of models. Uh, but th there's like a broader notion at play here. It's not just that I have a model, it's that I am a model and I really yeah, strong. Okay. Okay. Um, you s said inactive and embodied, um, yeah. and like I've, I jumped on Twitter maybe last year and I just, I keep seeing, you know, inactivism and embodied cognition popping up more and more. And I spoke to, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett a while back. Um, who's, yeah, she's great. She's yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, I think she, yeah. Yeah, and this kind of, reading her book, um, How Emotions Are Made, I think it's called, mm. just blew my mind, completely changed my worldview. And um, I guess- It's a very powerful point of view that she's defending. I mean, I'm very, very, very uh, friendly to the kind of constructivist uh, view of emotion that's being uh, pushed by that group. It's very- Yeah, very yeah. Powerful. And I guess just for those who are unfamiliar and Maxwell, if I- you know, don't do it, don't give, do it justice, please jump in. But what I took away with, from it was like, we have all these underlying bodily sensations 
um, that we interpret and then give meaning to in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they could be, we may feel a gnawing in the stomach and we may interpret that as hunger or it could actually be anxiety. And like we exactly. construct the, the emotion from that and something, <clears throat> and this, this ties into what we're talking about here through active inference that emotions, uh, in a way, um, the, I think I, I what did I write down? Yeah. Emergence are like an emergent form of prediction and they're, they're like how we at this, at the, at this scale at the scale of this organism, how we, uh, predict what's going on in the world and then react to it. Right. And like emotions arise based on sometimes the mismatch of our prediction and the, the, uh, the actual results. Yeah, precisely. I mean, we, we have a, a preprint, uh, that's in a revision right now in neural computation where we make basically that kind of argument, um, which cool. is to say that well, myself and, uh, our co-authors, um, Casper Hess, who I collaborate with, uh, very closely, um, Ryan Smith is also on uh, the paper. These, these are all uh, like very cool uh, researchers. Um, Casper is probably the person I've been collaborating with the most recently. Um, he's uh, he has a background in computational astrophysics. Oh, uh, I am uh, still sharing my screen. Sorry. Yep. Um, yeah. He so the the paper is called uh, "Deeply Felt Affect." Um, yeah, so uh, also on the paper is a Thomas Parr, um, who is uh, a, 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 like a, a, a basically a genius. I mean, Thomas is like one of the most impressive uh, scholars that I that I know. He, he's he's Carl's right hand man, basically. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So and Micah Allen is also on the paper, um, and myself. Uh, Micah is a cool, uh, in, in, in intro, uh, interoception, uh, yeah. researcher. Uh, yeah, he does very cool stuff as well. You might want to check out his, uh, his research, but yeah. So, uh, Casper, Ryan, Thomas, myself, and Carl are on this paper. And what we're essentially arguing, um, is that, um, you can think of, um, basically you can think of emotion by unpacking it formally in terms of um, basically state state inference about your state inferences. So like um, higher level inferences about how well you're doing with your lower level inference stuff. Uh, so we're sort of saying that emotion arises uh, along with kind of implicit metacognition. That as soon as you start to monitor yourself uh, and to assess how well you're doing, implicitly you're 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 you're, you're moving towards like emotional types of inference. Mm-hmm. Where like yeah, so I mean, in, in it, it to, to keep it simple in a nutshell, that's what we're arguing in that paper. Yeah. So. Well, what's what's really exciting about this perspective is that it brings like you know, we used to like some people think of emotions as just, as just like these useless relics or, um, of, of our Adamalian past, right. That they, they have absolutely no function. Um, and that if we were rational, we would do away with emotion. But I guess from this perspective, it's like, it's vitally important to, to how we interact with the world. And it's like, it's this, you could say like, a this, this compass of sorts that has emerged, um, mm-hmm. over time. And it's actually highly attuned to, um, well, our, ourselves and our place in the world. And that, without these things, without these feelings that we would just be bereft of any navigational means. We just wouldn't yeah, be able to exactly. survive. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And, um, 
I mean, so the, the, we were talking about like embodied and inactive. So like the, the, all these yeah, break down those, if you could break those down in some yeah, way, so uh, typically what you'll hear about is the four E a approach, right? So the four E's are uh, extended, embedded, embodied, and inactive. And the A is affective. So we just covered the A, right? And so all of these perspectives are meant to be correctives or criticisms of the traditional kind of cognitivist framework. Uh, Susan Hurley calls this the cognitive sandwich, right? Where you have perception, cognition, and action, right? In that sequence. So perception is basically like taking in passively the world. Cognition is creating an internal model that you use to then, that you manipulate to make sense of the world and then use to plan action. And then action is seen as sort of the motor output of this kind of process. So the cognitive sandwich, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the 4EA approach says this is wrong for several reasons. So the, we, we just discussed the, the A reason that it's wrong, right? Cognition isn't just like this kind of flat calculating process, right? It, it, it's, it essentially involves, uh, you know, self-monitoring, self-appraisal, uh, you know, the, the emotional reactions, right? Um, so the, the, the E's are also correctives of this cognitive this, uh, perspective, right? So the, uh, I guess the, the two E's that kind of come together are embedded and extended, which are basically like one more and one less radical version of the same claim. Um, so to illustrate it, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. Richard Feynman um, was discussed, the famous physicist, right? Uh, who was involved with the Manhattan Project. He's one of my idols. I, 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 I love the man. He's just amazing. Um, so Feynman was talking to um, this man who had bought um, the notes that he jot, where he jotted down like a famous equation, like the original kind of notes that where he worked out his equations. And he said, look, uh, you know, I, I have a, I have a trace of, you know, the, the, your thinking. And Feynman responds, no, what you have is, is my thinking. You know, it's not, it's not just like a, a trace or like a, a, uh, a testimony of my thinking. I, I used those equations to think through mm -hmm. on the paper, right? So this, this comes together um, uh, uh, under the, the broad rubric of embedded and extended cognition. So the idea that like cognition is something that is essentially world involving. It's not just like, it's not just like cognition is something that's in the head and sometimes in some context it spills out into the world in interesting ways. It always already involves engagement with the world. And then, you know, the differences in metaphysics like if you want to say that the world literally becomes part of the cognitive system as uh, this kind of ex this kind of cognitive overspill happens, like you know if you if you literally want to say that when um, you're writing an equation on a blackboard, the blackboard becomes part of your mind, then you're you're in the extended mind camp. Yeah. Uh, so the the mind is literally extending. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You know, one 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 possible metaphysical in, inconvenience of this view, though, is that it means that, like, when you're when you're using Google to to to, to perform a query, for for a, a few seconds or you know whatever fraction of a second it is, like the the servers are actually part of your cognitive processing. Some people want to avoid that implication, and yeah, we'll we say it, it, I just want to jump in. Is mind synonymous or like what's the connection between mind and cognition here? Because 
I mean, I think of question. cognition as information processing, whereas mind is very different, right? Like mind yeah, is this, this subjective uh, so experience. That, that's that's no. a nuance in the literature. Uh, some people, I mean, I think people will m more safely talk about extended cognition. Yeah. Uh, that, that's I mean, a review, right? To think that Google's just got a part of my brain and that, you know, like my mind is in Google is a little bit crazy. Yeah, know? so uh, it, it, it is safer indeed from a metaphysical point of view to talk about extended uh, cognition, all right, yeah. rather than uh, ex the extended mind. I think the, the thesis is used interchangeably, uh, like the label for the thesis, although you're, you're right, like that, that is a... a Andy Clark, I think, uh, discusses the nuance. He, he's one of the people who's who's worked on this a lot. Um, his, uh, I mean, the the original um, the original paper, I think, is from isn't it from Clark and Chalmers? Yeah, it's. I don't know. Uh, just let me make sure. Um, Clark Chalmers, the extended mind. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a Andy Clark and, and David Chalmers are the the people who kind of originally proposed at least the contemporary version of this um yeah and andy has this great book um supersizing the mind which which mm -hmm. kind of takes the idea and runs with it um yeah but uh, so i think some people would want to say yeah it literally is the mind that's being extended some people want to say no it's just cognition mm -hmm. um but you you could also think that this is a bit of a wacky idea and want to recognize that like there's a, there's a situated aspect, an ecological aspect to cognition, without buying that cognitive processes actually extend beyond the skull. By, so ecological, kind of by ecological, do you mean like we are embedded within some environment and that? Yeah, precisely. And the, the interaction is called the embedded mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Extended and embedded. Embedded is like the less radical cousin of extended. Okay. It, it, it kind of eschews the whole like metaphysics of does the yeah. mind extend? Does it make sense to say that cognitive processes spill out? And says, well, clearly to get some kind of ecologically valid behavior in humans, cognition needs to be scaffolded or embedded in the right kinds of contexts. Mm. So it, it, I mean, you know, for, for, for some people who don't like the radical, the radical, I'm, I'm not one of those. I, I want, I want something more radical personally, but, uh, yeah, that option does exist though in, in the E literature. Mm -hmm. So what, how do you think of cognition? Like what is cognition and Jesus. how is it different to information processing? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're very, very similar, but like when does a form of information processing become cognition? So, or is, mean, or is that I, the right question? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anymore. I mean, because by talking about, you know, like if, if through, through this lens, if I'm writing equations on a blackboard or like typing into my computer or, you know, interacting with, I don't know, Wolfram Alpha or something, and mm. that's performing, uh, that's processing information on my behalf. Mm. Um, when does that become cognition? Um, and if it is cognition, then do um, all my cells, because they all process information, my immune system is processing information, like my whole mm. body is processing information at all times, like my individual cells. If I had to, I, I, I'm sort of, I don't really like these broad concepts, like life, cognition. <laughs> no, but, yeah. but I mean, I, I suspect that it's the kind of thing that breaks down at, when you look at like the the kind of border cases. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I had a, a, when I was an undergrad, like, a decade ago, like I, I, uh, I had a, um, 
a philosophy of biology professor who is an eliminationist about life, uh, Frederick Bouchard at University of Montreal. And that kind of stayed with me, I think. He says so like- What's well, an eliminationist? Well, uh, it's, it's t- an eliminationist in general is uh, someone who thinks that X or Y concept uh, actually doesn't serve much of a purpose anymore and shouldn't be used scientifically. So a typical example of elimination in the progress of science is like the elemental fire of the ancients, right? Uh, so, you know, the, in, in, in ancient Greece or whatever, uh, you know, they, the, 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 there were these ontologies, these elemental ontologies, right? Where like the, the universe is like for, for Aristotle, like a combination of different elements and, you know, the, 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 there are similar versions of these ontologies, like across cultures, like, you know, uh, with different elements. Like I think the, the, the Chinese uh, elements or something like metal, wood, mm-hmm. fire, you know, we don't have, in, in the West, these ontologies didn't have metal, but whatever, you know. Um, and so fire uh, under these ontological classifications, which were, I mean, you know, they, they, they were sort of scientific at the time. I mean, I don't know if, if it makes sense to project our modern understanding of scientific practice back, back onto the Greeks, but certainly they were using these concepts explanatorily, right? So like, you know, uh, Aristotle uh, thought that uh, things that were um, of the earth element fell to the ground, right? And that's why, that's why they fell to the ground because they, they, they had an affinity to the, to the ground because they were of the element earth and inversely for flame, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so for the ancients, fire um, was a, the element fire uh, was like the underlying kind of commonality and explanation for what we would regard today as very diverse phenomena, right? Like, so bioluminescence and little insects like fireflies, that was fire, right? Rapid oxidation of a wood material in like a campfire was also fire, but the sun also, right? Which, which mm-hmm. we, we know isn't fire. I mean, it's, it's nuclear plasma, right? That was also fire. So the progress of science has showed us that, well, this concept that we were using doesn't actually have any explanatory grip. It, it names things that are heterogeneous in their uh, mechanistic basis. Um, and so similarly, one might argue, well, life is one of these concepts. Like it, it seems to us at a kind of everyday macro level that there's a distinction between life and non-life. Uh, but is there? I mean, I, I, I don't know. And I, I, I've sort of started to think that these, like working on these concepts per se is kind of mm. hopeless. And so like, I, I don't know if I want to give a blanket definition of something like cognition. Yeah. Or okay. like, especially because I don't know if there's such a natural kind to begin with. Right. I don't yeah, know. If yeah. 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 Well, a lot of these categories or concepts are like we, the way I think about it is there's just, patterns that we interpret right and there is and we just give a label to some patterns and like you know all dogs have a certain there's there's a certain pattern that they all have in common but there's a lot of like just crap there's a lot of noise that like doesn't actually correspond to what actually you know like a chihuahua might seem more like a rat than a you know a greyhound for instance but they're still dogs so like i I think of these concepts as just like approximations that are like good enough to enable us to work with them, right? Like you can have an I mean, infinite if, number if you, of concepts. If you painted me in a corner, right? And, and you put a gun to my head and said, define cognition. <laughs> uh, I would say something like it's information processing in the service of uh, maintaining phenotypic integrity, right? Uh, yeah. in, in the service of keeping me alive. I mean, and so 
that's another angle into the free energy principle, by the way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I want so, to come back to that. I just thought I'd, we'd kind of like go through these yeah. because there's a lot to it, right? There's If we're just talking about entities or organisms like maintaining themselves or like trying to minimize surprise, there's the discussion of like how they actually do that, what they are, like how, I mean, if we're talking about extended cognition or whatever mm. it was, you know, whatever it was, like that's if we really extend it out there, then yeah. what is actually being maintained? Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but um, if we were to bring it back, back to the free energy principle and like in terms of just we, we, minimization we were, there, there of surprise were, were or these concepts to discuss though for, for oh our, yeah our sorry community. sorry that, that's right it's, it's <laughs> all right it's all right uh, you know it's it's a lot to take in and, uh, and, and for, like you know for the for better or for worse like it all feeds into this yeah so it's it's it may be good to put all the so yes, okay so we discussed sure. affective extended and embedded the two remaining e's are i think like the most exciting personally the it, it embodied and inactive so the embodied mind is this idea that cognition isn't just in the head. Like co cognition ju doesn't just, isn't just accidentally something that's implemented in fleshy, like um, wetware systems. Like cognition like is premised on the existence of an embodied organism. And the, basically the embodied mind says something like, well, a lot of, well, you need to appeal to the physical living body to explain a lot of what cognition is, right? So uh, you can at least take this in, I think, three different ways. One, one would say, well, uh, the physical body is co-constitutive of cognition. So, I mean, you, you may have seen these really depressing studies that were conducted on judges um, a few years ago, like where they, after lunch or something, they just, yeah, exactly. nice. so yeah. for, for our, our listeners, <laughs> uh, basically what they do is they plot it. So they, it, it's a survey, it's study of, um, judges and their acquittal behavior. So like, uh, basically they, they, they will, they, they plot your odds of, of being, um, charged or acquitted against time of day. And so it seems that at, at the start of the day, you have a basically 80% chance to be acquitted. And as you approach lunchtime, it drops to 0%. And then there's a bump back up to 80% after lunch. So it, it seems, so that the way that the researchers interpreted this is that it has to do with blood sugar levels. Like when, when you have a lot of blood sugar available, you're ready to consider things like more deeply and really, and then, then when you're getting hungry, there's just no more glucose to do the activity. So you don't. <laughs> uh, so if someone wanted to say, well, you know, what, what cognition is, is just like rational, purely intellectual activity well i mean you know this is one of the this is one of the demonstrations that that isn't the case i mean it seems that the, the body essentially participates in mm -hmm. cognition and another example of this kind of physical embodiment and its relevance is like a phonotaxis in crickets is a very very widely discussed example in the literature so phonotaxis is um a behavior that crickets uh the crickets basically orient themselves towards mates uh, by exploiting the geometry of their bodies in picking up sound. So basically, uh, to initiate an approach of a mate, um, a cricket uses two neurons, just two neurons, and uh, it 
basically computes which of the neurons is stimulated first and it moves towards the that one because it basically its ears are organized in such a way that the sound will hit one ear before the other and there so the the actual information processing that the cricket accomplishes to orient itself towards mates exploits the physical geometry of its body like rather than having to engage in a more complex computation the 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 actual layout yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, human walking is very similar. Uh, I mean, if if you pay attention to to this too much, you might hurt yourself. But like, uh, basically, walking the human gait is falling forward and catching yourself with with the next leg. Uh, so it it just it is not the case as as some people would say optimal control theory in in motor uh, control um, studies. Yeah. It, it's just not the case that you have to compute the explicit movement of every part of your limb. Like you're just falling. And the only thing you need to compute is a, a limb trajectory such that you can catch yourself as you fall. So examples of this abound. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't seem to be the case um, that like you can think of cognition in a, in a kind of disembodied way. So that's just, the, that, to be, just to be explicit, disembodied being like brain in a vat. Uh, just all the sensory input comes in. Well, when I say that, I mean, like a brain up extreme, here. In the extreme view, but also, I mean, you know, a lot of the cognitive science, like Fodor style modularity of the mind, you know, like all these views that say that it's the sandwich model that's being criticized mm-hmm. here, right? That like, yeah. you know, you passively intake some stimulus, yeah. that you you construct an internal model, uh, uh, and, the, uh, and so... It's it's this internal model thing that the, the 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 embodied mind people are kind of pushing against. It's like I don't need an explicit internal model of how every one of my joints moves in space, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I just don't. I don't need to compute that. My body is such that the only thing that I need to compute is where my leg lands to to absorb like to keep me from falling, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but so that. That's one way that you can understand the embodied mind. Another way that you can understand it is to say that uh, this is a more first-person point of view. Is that like the the my first-person understanding of the world borrows from my embodied disposition. So think of metaphors like descent into hell or rise to glory or something. Well, that has to do with the way that my body, you know experiences itself in its lived space right so when you're sad you know like the entire geometry of your body is kind of like slumpy you know like downwards we associate downwards to disempowerment and that has to do with the way that we experience space as embodied beings from a first person point of view um so uh, the last way you might understand it is um in terms of like social embodiment. So this is kind of Hegelian. Uh, it's, it's this idea that like the literally the, the layout of our worlds embodies something about our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like uh, it, 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 I'm sure it, it's uh, for having been, I know it's the case in Sydney. It's also the case in Montreal. Like, you know, our, our streets meet at right angles we use things like traffic signals um, and, and uh, well, traffic signalization, red lights, all these things 
that effectively embody norms. Uh, so the, uh, I mean, and this is where it kind of connects with the extended mind literature. Like yeah. th there's another sense in which the mind is embodied. It's physically realized in these artifacts uh, mm -hmm. that, that we, yeah, that, that, that embody uh, not just knowledge, but like, you know, ways of engaging the world uh, that like support and ground our coordinated group practices. Um, yeah. And, uh, and the, so this, this relates to the free energy principle pretty directly. Um, I mean, uh, oh, oh, maybe, maybe I should hold off to before just jumping into that. Um, yeah. Was there a final E? Am I? I yes. I feel like uh, I've just, is, yeah. Okay. Good. Because I'm like, sorry. I'm just too many E's to keep track of. <laughs> it's inactive. So, inactive. Yeah. Inactive uh, means that cognition is something that we do. Um, so, I mean, the idea there is to emphasize like the sensory motor loop and to kind of undo uh, the sandwich model. So consider the following like what is a visual saccade right yeah it's, it's like the, yeah 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 like so you, your point is like our eyes aren't static but they're constantly moving left and right, like very very small amounts and that's necessary for vision yeah, uh, it, yeah. it's 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 the mechanism of vision really it's mm -hmm. like uh, a, a lot of what your uh, visual uh, cortex for, is doing in, in interaction with the motor cortex is kind of deciding where to, to look next, right? So there's a sense in which the, the classical sandwich model tells you uh, action, sorry, uh, perception is in the service of action, right? It, and it's, it's, it's linear. It goes one direction, mm -hmm. right? So it's perception, cognition, and then action. And what the inactive approach tells you is, well, actually, Action is also for perception. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really a loop, you know, it, like. It seems like epistemically things. superior as well, because like you learn a lot more from acting than you do from just perceiving. Like exactly. from, from acting, you get all the information, maybe not all of it, but you get far more than you would if you were just perceiving. Um, makes yeah, just think of, like, that, that's really where the active inference stuff gets its teeth from. Yeah, uh, okay. like active inference is ultimately a theory about how you sample the world. So about how you engage in specific actions uh, that have a, an epistemic value mm. and that, that help you disambiguate the world. Uh, yeah. So, so just to make it more understandable, accessible, and empowering us to act within it in a way that's hopefully beneficial for ourselves and doesn't result in catastrophe. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the, out of all of them, I think like it, you, you can tie all of these ease to the free energy stuff. I mean, we started with the affective yeah. and I mean, there's a lot of work, uh, you know, from, uh, increasingly from our group, but mainly from other groups right now, uh, tying, um, this, uh, this free energy stuff explicitly into mechanisms of affective mm. processing. Um, so just but, a question on yeah. free energy. Why is it called free energy? Because my understanding of free energy oh. is like energy that is within a system that can be used towards some end. Like yeah. So the heuristically, the way you can think about it is that the variational free energy is a measure of how much wiggle room you have on your parameters still to get a better representational grip on whatever you're trying to represent. So 
there's a direct analogy in that sense, right? If if the thermodynamic free energy is the amount of uh, energy left in the system to perform work, the variational free energy is the uh, amount of energy left in the system to keep doing like better representational work. Um, I mean, it, it's it's worth mentioning that like they are the same quantity in, in a certain sense. Like the 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 information theoretic variational free energy is just a generalization of the thermodynamic free energy. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, that's where it's a little bit, that's where it gets a little complicated. And that's where like a background in physics is kind of useful. Uh, it has to do with these, these deep relations between probability and energy. Um, so, you know, this, this goes back to like Boltzmann and stuff mm-hmm. like that, like, uh, like statistical mechanics. So like, if you think of a, a volume of matter, right. Um, like the, the more energy is in the system, like the hotter it is, uh, like the, the more possible configurations it could be in. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if you think of a gas, a gas like, you know, it's very hard to predict where any given molecule of the gas can, will find itself in the volume. It can move a lot. If you think of a crystal, very regular relations. Right. Um, so the, the, the notion that we use in that kind of context is entropy. Right. So entropy is a measure of spread, essentially. So if you think of a probability distribution, right, over a, a set of outcomes. Right. So like, I don't know, to make it very simple, uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to pull a ball out of a hat and the ball can be one of four colors. I don't know, red, red green, blue, purple. Uh, like if I if I don't know anything at all, you know, about about the balls, like it, 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 that if, if if so, there are four kinds of balls in our, our bag and I, I'm, I'm picking some out. There are not just four balls, though, in the bag. There, there are like as many as I as I need. So mm-hmm. I want to know something about like the, the distribution of balls, you know, of, of ball colors. Um, well, so if, if all of them are equally probable, like if, if, if in reality, there's like 25% of each type, right? Well, the distribution is flat, right? Like, because there's 25% of each type. So if, if you drew a histogram, like it would be a flat distribution a flat categorical distribution, right? Uh, inversely, if, uh, you know, there was only one, uh, one red, one blue, and one green, and, and uh, 97 purple out of 100 balls, then you would have a very, a very peaked distribution, right? Like, it would peak over purple, and then it would be very low over the other colors. So the first kind of distribution uh, is not informative, right? Like it, it's, it, you know, it's equally probable. Everything is flat. We say that the entropy is high in that kind of context because the probability distribution over the system is flat, right? And it, or, so there's a lot of spread. Inversely, uh, in the second distribution, the entropy is low because the probability is basically all concentrated over one outcome. So, so it's very informative. And so, so you get this kind of behavior in physical systems when you consider heat, right? Uh, so a very hot system is high entropy, 
the, the, the specific particles that make up a hot system could be in any number of configurations. Um, a cold system, to the contrary, has a, a narrower range of states in which it can be. I mean, you can see this literally as water turns into ice, right? Like it, the degrees of freedom of the parts are drastically diminished as they end up forming a solid, right? So, the, so there are these kind of deep relations between the probability of finding the system in a given state and the energy in the state. And uh, so the free energy principle kind of builds on that. Uh, it, it, I like to say kind of jokingly that it answers the question, how can we be so cool? Uh, meaning that like as living systems, we were, we're in, in the information theoretic sense, we're very cold systems. Like, uh, so the, the, the anthropologist Terence Deacon makes an interesting point. He says, you know, contrary to the received dogma in philosophy, the whole is much less than the sum of its parts. Consider an engine, right? Uh, for an engine to work, each of the parts that make up the engine have to be constrained to behave in very specific ways, right? Like you wouldn't want to start introducing degrees of freedom into the piston movement, right? Because you would you would get some very serious damage done to your system. Uh, so, so like organized systems like engines and humans and bacteria like live in very restricted uh like subspaces of the possible space of configurations that it could be in like so you know in in theory you know my, my body temperature could be 50 degrees celsius or three degrees celsius but for some reason it maintains itself at 36 and a half degrees celsius uh, and you could say the same for a lot of the parameters uh, that make up my mm. my body. And so the, the question is, well, how do you manage to stay there? And that's where the free energy principle comes in. Um, so, so it's that we, like organisms, like we are complex adaptive systems, right? Like life is, well, we are, you know, manifestations of, or we are complex adaptive systems and because we are ordered in such a way, we have a low entropy. I'm just want to make sure that I'm like, communicating this correctly, um, we have a low entropy because the probability of finding this arrangement of atoms in this state is incredibly low. And that means right. we have low entropy, right? Um, and what we do is in order for us to maintain this state across time, um, based on the fact that the second law of thermodynamics states that entropy is increasing across time, um, that we need to be taking energy in, processing it in some way to ensure that we maintain this low entropy state across time. And so how does the free energy principle fit into here? Is it, well, so I, I guess the, that's, that's, where we're, that's where we're getting, right? right. Yeah. yeah, so the, the, the free energy principle um, <clears throat> tells you what, so what pe a lot of people don't get about the, 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 the variational framework is that it all rests on a bit of math. So it doesn't make sense to say like, you know, the, is, is, is the free energy principle true or false? It's like, well, it's the same status as calculus, right? Yeah. So like, you know, uh, you, you, don't, you don't like disprove calculus. Like if there's a problem with calculus, you derive a contradiction, right? Or, or you show that this or that kind of bit of the formalism doesn't follow. And mm -hmm. the, the free energy principle is very much the same thing. It, like if, if we're really just drilling down and like uh, and just looking at it from the most technical point of view, 
What it's basically telling you is what must necessarily be true of any system that exists at non-equilibrium steady state. So let me unpack that. Um, equilibrium is where is the endpoint, right? So the second law of thermodynamics is about equilibrium, essentially. It's telling you like where systems are, where almost all physical systems are kind of converging towards. Mm-hmm. So like, um, you just think like a hot plate, right? Like one side of the hot plate's hot, the other side's cold. Over time, exactly. the whole plate will be the same temperature. It all yeah, it's goes not just, to- It's not just that nature abhors a vacuum, it's that nature abhors a gradient, right? Like n- nature wants things to be perfectly flat, smooth. So it, again, it's the entropy thing. It's like yeah. nature is trying to flatten all the probability distributions, right? So uh, I, I'm a big fan of ginger ale. Uh, I like a nice, cold, fizzy ginger ale. But much to my chagrin, if I leave it on the counter for 30 minutes, it'll become room temperature and not fizzy, right? So this kind of room temperature, not fizzy is equilibrium, mm-hmm. right? It's just like the, the and it, you know, if you pushed it to the extreme and, and you, I left the thing, uh, I left the, the you know, the, the glass of ginger ale on the counter for 2 billion years, well, it will have completely dissolved and sublimated into the into the environment. I mean, like after 2 billion years, like potentially like even the solid material of the glass would have started to like diffuse into the environment, like through sublimation, there might not even be a glass there left anymore. So one thing to notice about systems in nature is that self-organization itself is almost always in the service of increasing entropy and returning to equilibrium. So that 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 fact is underappreciated, I think, in in the study of self-organized complex adaptive systems. Uh, like, so think of a, a, a lightning bolt, right? So a lightning bolt arises because you have a charge gradient, right? So like you know it, it because of like the movement of particles and whatnot, like you you get more electrons stuck in one place than in another. Mm-hmm. And the in striking the lightning bolt corrects the balance, right? It, sorry, corrects the the imbalance and br- it brings the system closer to equilibrium. Uh, so the same is true of a tornado, right? So you have a, a a temperature gradient in a tornado. Yeah, typically have very cold and very hot air that kind of meet in a way that they're stacked, and then like the tornado, it it looks like it's increasing order locally. Uh, and it does locally, but but the, the cost of it is to increase disorder globally. And the same is true of the lightning bolt. The lightning bolt self-organizes around a charge gradient, and in striking it consumes the gradient around which it was self-organized. Uh, yeah, so this is true of almost every self-organizing system. Uh, they increase entropy and they consume energy uh, to stay um, too self self-organized. So if you think of a star, for example, when you say increase entropy, do you mean locally or do you mean globally? globally. Because, yeah, yeah, because that's the important distinction, right? Because I was I was slightly confused because I'm like, no, well, self-organized systems want to stay self-organized and they process or use in, they use energy. Well, I mean, to, to, to put it crudely, think of how much think think of how much matter you have turned into poop over the last year. Yeah, I, I mean, just. Just like think of how much literally the raw amount of matter that you have disorganized in order to maintain your own integrity. 
this is this is the rule. I mean, uh, yeah, a star well, it is the, outputs, the, the rule, right? It's like one yeah, of exactly. The laws a star of the outputs a lot of energy, right? Like a, it, it, I mean, all of the energy on planet Earth, basically used by living organisms, except in like these weird submarine ecosystems, comes from the sun. But I, I think the the figure is something like it takes ten times more energy to create a star than a star will output in its whole life, in terms of like the the actual energy that it takes to create a star, right? Like everything kind of, yeah. So even a star is, is a, is a machine that primarily serves to increase the entropy of, uh, of the universe. Mm. Um, So having said all this, uh, you know, living systems like bunny rabbits and tigers and, uh, and, you know, you and I um, don't self-organize to equilibrium. We self-organize to this other thing that's known as a non-equilibrium steady state. So the difference is kind of intuitive. Um, let's take a simple example. My, my, my body temperature is 36 and a half degrees. Uh, my core body temperature, that is. Um, and so that's a steady state. Like my, my body set that as like a point and my homeostasis makes sure that I, I maintain myself at that point. Um, so, I mean, this is uh, contrary to, like I was saying, basically all other kinds of self-organized systems that don't self-organize to this steady state, but rather self-organize to equilibrium for, for organisms, equilibrium is death, right? Mm -hmm. If if I became, if I, if my core body temperature kind of diffused to room temperature, I would die like quite literally. Um, so the free energy principle basically tells you what must be true of an organism uh, if it exists at non-equilibrium steady state. And so it's, it's literally starting from um, information theory uh, and dynamical systems theory. And then like formulating, okay, so like what does a system look like when it exists at non-equilibrium steady state in these regimes? And what must be true of it for it to continue existing in this in this state in a nutshell that's what the free energy principle mm-hmm. does so how do we begin to like there's a few there's a few ways i want to go here one is just to describing or explaining how are we sort of measuring these things or um like is, is this found in all i guess this is when you mentioned it's kind of like a tool like calculus, it's it's not a, a thing that's observed. It's a way of observing or way of describing these things, right? And this is just something that is a characteristic of life. So this is where the, it gets a little subtle. It's the, so that having said everything about the non-equilibrium steady state, okay, so I didn't tell you what the free energy principle does. I just kind of set up the problem that it answers, right? So mm-hmm. to recap, uh, organisms exist at non-equilibrium steady state, right? So now we know what that means, right? So they, they don't, they don't self-organize to equilibrium, which would just, yeah. you know, it's, it's my, uh, flat and warm room temperature, um, you know, gender rate. right. I, I self-organize to my phenotype. I self-organize to, um, the set of states that I occupy most of the time right? That, that make me the kind of creature that I am, right? So 
if I'm a fish, I self-organize to a set of states that allow me to exist as a fish, right? So I'll grow gills, right, and fins and so on. Uh, and, you know, analogous things can be said for, you know, self-organization as a human. So uh, given that I exist at non-equilibrium steady state, the free energy principle tells me what must be true of me, you know, in, provided that I continue existing at non-equilibrium mm -hmm. steady state. So in a nutshell, what the free energy principle says um, is that um, if I exist at non-equilibrium steady state, it will look as if my behavior is being generated by a statistical model of my environment. So that's the crucial point. It's that it's, uh, are you familiar with Dennett's, um, Daniel Dennett's, like the intentional stance? No. Okay. So it's a position in philosophy that basically says, well, why, why is it that we, we are able to treat each other as intentional systems, i.e. as systems that have aboutness, right? That are uh, able to respond adaptively and intelligently to the environment. So Dennett says, well, Essentially, it's that we, we, we adopt the intentional stance. It's not that there's something like intentionality in systems. It's that we, we, for certain purposes, adopt towards others a certain perspective that ascribes to them beliefs and desires and so on. And for our survival and, in, and insofar as our capacity to explain the behaviors of others is involved, it's adaptive and efficient to do so, right? Uh, so this is the so-called intentional stance. So the, the free energy principle has a similar flavor. It says like, it, it looks as if organisms, um, the behavior of organisms is being generated by a statistical model that the organism is. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the statistical model, I, I just, I really like the, the idea of like the, I think the most intuitive way for me to think about it is the minimization of surprise, which you could think of mm -hmm. as this, if we are a statistical model, it, as in that we are like, as you said, um, it's not just our brains, but our entire being is, is the model. Then, um, I, I like this notion of minimizing, uh, of seeing that as a way of minimizing surprise because surprise is not always good, right? Especially for life. Surprise could be a line or it could be, uh, disease. It could be anything. It could be. I mean, it, it, in terms of, if you're looking at it, like just very, um, technically the, the, the way that it's set up is that like surprising states, um, are not good for the most mm. part. Um, and we're talking about internal states, but no, all, all states, all states. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it, sure. it, here's where it gets a little subtle because uh, humans are also averse to boredom, for example, right? So yeah. it's not just about making sure that you never are surprised, right? It's just that there, there are certain kinds of observations about which you don't want to be surprised, yeah. right? So like, uh, I currently observe that there's a lot of breathable air around me, right? I, 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 I'm breathing very freely right now. Uh, similarly, like I, my, my observations are consistent with uh, my belief that my core body temperature is 36 and a half degrees, that I still have four limbs, right? Like 
the, so that there are, there are some beliefs about the typical things that I should be observing that like, you know, challenging those beliefs is very bad for my survival. Right. Like, so if suddenly the first belief that I mentioned, right, that, that, that there's a lot of breathable air was suddenly like, put into question by, by sensing evidence counter to it, I would probably act in a way to make sure that, you know, yeah. different was going to happen because I, I, I need air. So the, there's a sense in which like the free energy principle builds in uh, like a good part of the, the normativity involved in existing as a, as a prior preference over certain kinds of data or like uh, observable outcomes. Like the, I, I prefer to generate certain kinds of data. That doesn't mean though that like, I, uh, I want to eliminate surprise mm. entirely though. Well, that makes uh, a lot of, I mean, because you, for one, you can't, and two, surprise is informative, right? And as you go up scale, so this is what, I th- what I'm very excited about. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak in, I think it, it applies to some of the work that you've done, you know, about how this is found across scales and yeah. that every time, but given that we are embedded and our own actions change the environment, that as we increase, as, as the scale increases, there is always more to know and we can always right. be surprised. And now that we're at this, plan, now we are a planetary species, we have a whole host of things to be surprised by now that we, well, so we there, wouldn't There's be. a sense in which like the, so this notion of prediction error it effectively replaces the, the the classical notion of signal. So consider the following, like a one-to-one map, like a, a one-one scale map would be completely useless, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, imagine like, you know, you're visiting New York for the first time, like a one-to-one scale map, like, you know, it would be, it would be like bigger than a building, right? Like the, the actual amount of paper. So like in order to be useful at all, a model has to be simpler than the the data space that it's modeling, right? Um, you know, like so. There's a sense in which, like, just by construction, for a model to be useful, it will have to generate error. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in, in the kind of, and this is slightly broader than active inference in the free energy principle. It's it's the Bayesian brain uh, with slightly older, you know, approaches developed like in the '90s and 2000s. Um, so like from that point of view, uh, signal, like the, the signal that, that the organism perceives is a prediction error. Uh, like, cause the, basically the idea is like, if, if the, if, if my sensory observations match my expectations, there's no sense in processing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's what I expected, whatever. There's no sense in yeah. mobilizing my metabolic resources to address a, per, a percept that I had perfectly, uh, predicted. And that, you know, if I'm hooked up in the right way, like, you yeah. know, predicted percepts should just kind of roll off, you know, yeah, without, yeah, yeah, yeah. Without needing to engage them. Uh, yeah. So the, there's a sense in which like all signal is error. And that's, it's efficient that way because. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's what um, Lisa Feldman Barrett was. That's what she, I, I don't think she, she discovered, but that's what she, she spoke about a lot. I kind of forgot about that part of it. That's, um. That's really interesting. It, it underlies a lot of the, 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 like the motivation for the approach, right? So we're saying like an organism embodies a statistical model of its environment, meaning that like there's a kind of average value that it expects to encounter for different classes of stimuli, right? 
and uh, the organism will only be pro prompted to process uh, like a stimulus when there's a deviation from what it expected. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so there's an extra twist that makes it especially interesting and that makes it robust to some uh, objections. It's known as a dark room problem. I think it's a non-problem, honestly. Uh, but so the darkroom problem says, okay, well, if there's this surprise minimization thing going on, why isn't it the case that I just find uh, a dark room and stay there? Because that would be a great way to avoid all prediction error, right? If I predict that I'm in a dark room and I'm in a dark room, there's no prediction error. And so why don't I just do that? Two reasons, I think, kind of spring to mind immediately. The first is that you can have an ex. I mean, so we're embodied, right? To, to bring it back to the embodied mind, like my body is a statistical model like it's a it i embody expectations about you know my environment so for example i have expectations about my blood sugar level right and so staying in a dark room with no food is gonna you know frustrate some of my expectations about my blood sugar level such that at some point i'm gonna uh you know move out there are more direct ways to gerrymander it a bit and I can see why you might find those like less principled. You could, for example, just stipulate that you have an aversion uh, to, uh, you know, encountering uh, no surprise for a while. There's no reason why you couldn't do that. Like just to bake it into, I mean, th but there's a more principled way to do the same. So um, this free energy quantity that we've been talking about, um, what you can do is kind of, think about how it evolves in the future. So you can think like for every possible course of action that I can take, how much free energy is associated with that, um, with that uh, course of action. So when you have this future, future oriented or this kind of uh, this extended construction of the free energy, it's called the expected free energy. It turns out that for, for some using these nice mathematical tricks, you can decompose that into uh, basically a pragmatic component, which is basically how close do I get to my preferred observations, and an epistemic component, which is irrespective of how close I get to my preferred observations, um, am I gaining any information by making this observation? So like, I don't know, it's, it's three in the morning, you come back from the pub, you're hungry, right? You, you, go, you stumble into the, the kitchen, Right, but it's three in the morning, so it's dark. The first thing you do is open the light. Well, I mean, from a kind of classical kind of expected utility theory perspective, that's a bit puzzling because you don't get any immediate gratification from opening the light. You know, it's not like it's not like you're getting like you know, like sexual gratification or like you know, food stuff immediately from opening the light. The the only but we do though, right? Like you know, we we open the light, and the reason we do is that like. There's information gained from doing that. Uh, so so a, a, an action basically has an, a pragmatic component, the, the pragmatic affordance or a value of a, of a policy, and the uh, epistemic component of a value or a policy. So you, you, an, another way to respond to this darkroom uh, objection is to say, well, look, uh, like the organism also acts to um, basically increase its epistemic grip on its world. So there's a point at which like there, there's nothing more to gain from just like staying in the dark room. 
And so you'll probably, you know, hear something outside the room and want to disambiguate what that is and mm. go to go for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about what the implications are or what we know about this and social species where mm. species have to coexist and collaborate. You know, they can't exist in isolation. They need like right. these, these organisms need to interact and cooperate in order to exist. And I'm thinking of, you know, bees and ants, but also, you know, humans. Um, what do so we- I, I've worked a lot on this. Like that's, that's sort of one of my, the main thrusts of my research is extending this active inference business to uh, social and cultural behavior. And I guess the main idea there is that um, these, these models that I was talking about earlier, these statistical models, so they're called generative models because um, so technically these models there, they are the joint probability distribution over uh systemic states and external states. So systemic being the organism. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it's yeah. internal states, it's active states, it's sensory states, and some some set of external states. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, wait, I, I sorry, I, I I I lost my I lost my idea there. It's okay. Um, I, I've, I think I've been there once or twice this conversation. <laughs> um, we're talking about um, social species. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. So, the um, so these models, are, I was just saying this because they're called generative because, because of the setup that I was describing earlier, right? You can use these models to generate uh, the kind of data that you would expect if the model was the case, right? So like having a generative model uh, kind of sets you up with I don't want to like, I don't necessarily want to say normative, but like the, the kind of, it sets you up with like the, uh, a, a grip on the kind of typical observations that you would make given the kind of creature that you are. Right. So it, it, that's, that's literally what, what it does. It's a, it's the joint probability distribution over some external states, right. And some organismic states. Um, so the way that we do uh, cultural and social dynamics under this approach is to say, okay, what happens if several agents share the same model? So again, like the model essentially harnesses your expectations about the way states of the world, which could be social states, hook up to the kind of typical observations that you make, right? So one way to talk about sharing a social world is in terms of sharing a generative model, i.e., sharing a kind of statistical model about how the observations that I make typically map onto states of the world. And uh, if, if we were to just translate into everyday language, like people seeing the same phenomena in, a, in the same way. Yeah, exactly. Sharing yeah. the same expectations yeah. um, and prior beliefs about uh, the world and about how my, my sensory phenomenology relates to aspects of the world. Yeah. In a nutshell. Um, so, I mean, there's some pretty compelling simulation work done on, um, it's by Chris Frith and Carl Friston mainly, uh, although it's been extended, uh, on uh, basically little agents. Um, it's, it's like bird song simulation. So you have little agents that uh, sing a song and they're able to coordinate. Um, 
like little simulated birds. They're essentially able to coordinate their singing behavior and recognize when they're singing versus when the other bird is singing by sharing the same generative model. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, the idea is sort of that um, if we share the same expectations about the way that states of the world map onto our observations and the way that states of the world evolve, uh, then, you know, th there's a sense in which each of our coordinated, each of our individual behaviors end up coordinated because we expect the same outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, so, so that's how we end up doing. So it's like, it, I think about it like this, if we're all, uh, I don't know, drivers or something, we're all people and we all have a map. If the map is the same and we're kind of work, working with other people, we'll kind of go on the same roads or in some, if, if we're all following the same map, we'll end up going to the same places. If there's like some sort of directionality or, you know, X is the spot. I know that I've got a compass, there's the map. I will go in that direction and everyone else will. But if exactly. they're not the same, then people might not. That's the... And yeah, so there's some cool results. Um, this is Edda Bielek, who's currently at UCL. She's done, she's done a lot of hyperscanning. Um, are you familiar with this hyperscanning or social scanning? It's no. multi-brain neuroimaging. It's like the new thing right now. So like rather than um, just scan one brain, yeah, like in real time, you hook up several people to, to fMRI or EEG or whatever your modality is, and you, you, can, you can measure brain-to-brain -brain information transfer. Um, yeah, it's, it's a cool... <laughs> It's a cool do a lot of what we're doing now is going to be combining like this hyperscanning setup with uh, active inference uh, models that use multiple agents so, so that we can uh, so, I mean are, are the participants doing things like like I, I first think of like video games, sports, choir, jazz bands it, it depends I mean like s s uh, there's been hyperscanning uh, done on uh, people uh, the cool thing about uh, some of this hyperscanning stuff using more portable technology is that you can have ecologically realistic settings. So they, they've used EEG, which are these like caps that pick up scalp electrical activity um, in operas, for example, to get like people's real time impressions of like seeing uh, a show together. Uh, in this case, it's, it has more to do. Uh, I mean, it, it, these are techniques that are used in several different studies. I mentioned Edda's work because she has some cool data where like, um, it seems that, um, I mean, this is one of the things that I have to check with her if we can put it on the, the internet yet. So we might have to cut this out, but this, this, <laughs> no worries. this, this may just be for your own benefit, but like they, she has the, this cool work that shows that basically um, romantic partners don't, don't um, they don't attune to each other anymore. They don't have to like the, they're not actively trying to adjust to the other person anymore because they have, they have such an accurate model of the other person. So there's like a sweet spot. There's like Divorce a sweet predictions. spot. <laughs> if, if your models are not similar enough, like if you don't speak the lang the same language and you're not from the same culture, there's not enough commonality to start adjusting. But if you're, if you're too similar, there's no need to adjust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like an inverse U-curve kind of thing going where like on the one end, like there's perfect synchrony because you, you have the same model. So it's, it's like these romantic couples that don't really need to check with each other anymore because they just know. They know what their partner thinks, 
right? It's like old people um, who just don't talk to each other because they're just telecommunicating. Like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so like the, the kind of overall framework, you know, kind of gives you this inverted U where like, uh, you know, the, yeah, it, it's all about the extent to which you share a generative model. Mm. And so, I, yeah, I think that, that kind of well illustrates like this, the, the, the kind of generalizability of the approach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd be, I mean, this is a little bit sad, I guess, but be funny to see if it predicted divorce, you know, like, um, incoherent models, it would. just like, I'm sure that I'm sure they would. Right. Because that's how, like a lot of divorces arise, right? People acting in one way that doesn't, you know, uh, cohere with what their partner wants. And over time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. so the, these, these techniques, I think, uh, are, 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 are being scaled up to more like, you know, interesting, you know, socially rich human behaviors. Yeah. And yeah. So <clears throat> It has to do with the full pipeline. I mean, so I've been I've been talking about like the the side of this that I'm like coming from more, which is like the the kind of computational modeling side. But I mean to uh, to return to the if if you don't mind me sharing my screen for a second again, no, I'll, please, I'll, please. I'll of course describe uh, what's going on, um, but. Yeah, this is what I wanted. So the the whole the full pipeline that we're considering is this kind of thing where like what I've been talking mainly. So what we're seeing now for, for those of you listening is three circles. So you have two circles on the side that are pointing towards a middle circle. The middle circle is data. And the two side circles are the modeling bit that I've been talking about a lot and the experimental uh, side of things. The, the, I, I alluded to a bit when we were discussing uh, this fMRI stuff, right? So like, and this relates to our, our earlier discussion of like, you know, is this an explanation really? Uh, like the full, the full pipeline is this thing here. It's, it's a combination of experimental and modeling uh, techniques that are kind of, kind of joined at the data. So basically, uh, you, you start with either end. Um, so suppose you start with an experimental setup like we were just discussing, um, you're, you're, which, which you have is like people performing a psychological task and you're, you're, you're uh, getting either uh, you know, neurological or behavioral data or both from them, <clears throat> right? So that's this side of the equation here, right? So you have an experimental setup that generates some data. And then what you can do is write down a generative model of the kind that I just described, uh, or rather what you, what you end up doing is writing families of generative models of the kind that I just described that each represent a, a hypothesis about the causal structure of what generated of this process that actually generated, uh, my data. So like it, so in this, in this instance, like each of these models is, is uh, a model of, uh, one possible hypothesis about, you know, the the causal factors involved in the experimental setup that generated the data in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So you construct these models, you score them using the variational free energy to find the most probable one, right? And so that that model that you end up selecting encodes a hypothesis about the structure uh, of the process involved in the experimental setup. So now what you can do is kind of bootstrap your thing, right? Like you can use the fitted model, right? 
to make better predictions about what kind of things you would have to test experimentally. So then you can refine your experimental setup and generate better data. And then using this better data, you can construct new models that are more refined mm. and make more pointed hypotheses about the, the structure of the process that you're investigating. And so you get this cool kind of bootstrapping, uh, self re like virtuous- Reinforcing feedback loop, yeah. Science, yeah. That's really that's, that, really that's an often underappreciated point. Like you know, I I I, I see uh, these kind of uh, partial criticisms of the active inference framework that go well. You know, like surely these computational models aren't the full story. Uh, you know, like you're 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 not really talking about the mechanistic implementation, uh, which is fair. It's but it, the the thing to keep in mind is that the the full framework necessarily includes this neuroimaging aspect that makes very pointed hypotheses about brain structure, for example. Um, yeah, and in fact, if you think about it, it, the origins of the approach, you know, are in fMRI. Uh, so like the, the behavioral modeling thing that's kind of become front and center, and that's gained so much attention actually is just one part of this whole process. I mean, so the as a philosopher, the thing that gets me really excited recently um, is this thing, computational nosology. Uh, so this is where we're moving towards a kind of meta-science or a meta-Bayesian meta-science. So, I mean, to rehearse the argument, uh, you can have, uh, if you apply this framework to some set of experimental data, like a bold signal, then what you're doing effectively is writing a model of the underlying neurobiological activity that might have caused your data, right? We, we've, we've discussed this. <clears throat> Active inference is takes the same kind of approach and says, okay, here the data are the sensory signals that I, I generate in engaging with the environment, and the model is a model of me acting in the world. <clears throat> okay, so what, what happens when the data that we want to explain is the result of the scientific activity itself? <clears throat> so for example, what happens if the data that I want to explain is a psychiatric diagnosis, right? What I want to explain is the diagnosis of, you know, the, the actual diagnostic act of, you know, saying, telling a patient you have schizophrenia. Well, then the model is, becomes a model of the diagnostic process. And then lo and behold, we are part of that model as clinicians and experimenters, right? Like the, the generative models that we use in this sense of, of the active inference sense, right? The, the models that I bring to bear as a clinician to make sense of the clinical phenomenon presented, right? And also these models, like the models of how like the, the hemodynamics and so on, like relate. To, yeah, exactly. All yeah. of that is now in this kind of meta Bayesian approach where like the, the full model of the diagnostic process includes the models that I use as a, as a theoretician and the, the, the clinical models that are used by like a psychiatrist. So this is where we're going. Like, a, a so it seems to me, it's just like the scope of what is actually important is far broader. It's not just the actual experiments or the, or the models themselves, but it's those who are actually, well, running them and actually coming yeah, up with them. It's, 100%, and, yeah. So yeah, where absolutely. does, where's the boundary? Uh, like what is has that to be one? I mean, so remember that the, the free energy principle is a, is a theory of non-equilibrium steady state. 
So if, if, if a system exists at non-equilibrium steady state, it can be explained by the free energy principle. This isn't just a, a hypothesis. By virtue of what it means to exist at non-equilibrium steady state, for principled reasons, you can appeal to the active inference framework, yeah. the variational stuff to do it. So to the extent that science is just another, uh, you know, large-scale human activity with its own non-equilibrium steady states, then it can also be modeled. Yeah, well, this, this kind of brings me to um, the point about social systems and, and all that. And um, I guess taking this and applying it to our politics and our societies. And I mean, we all Absolutely. have this. So I'm working right now with uh, my PhD student on um, the, the constitution of epistemic communities. So like, it sounds very abstract in one sense, but like, so think of like, you know, you, you've seen these maps of like the, the, the US like electoral politics and everything where you have like these little islands of blue and these seas of red, right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll close the, the, um, of, the, of the perspective that we're advancing here, um, <clears throat> I mean, it may be that like, people are literally living in different worlds in the sense that like, they're no longer the same kind of creature they don't, they don't have the same generative model. Uh, like just the, we, 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 we've effectively, uh, you know, the, the, the course of politics in, for example, the United States, but I think increasingly elsewhere, uh, especially, I mean, like the information like, environments in which we're living in, I'm just so like, because we can, uh, select what we, you know, through Twitter, Facebook, exactly. uh, these social media environments, we can construct our inf information environments and they, they in turn construct us. And what I think is... Yeah, and that, that is a beautiful point. And that, this is one of the things that we've uh, really drilled down on, on the active in the active inference family of things. I mean, you, you in the discussion before we started, you mentioned Axel Constant, who's a really close friend and a collaborator. <clears throat> and Axel is responsible for uh, also with Yella Brinenberg, but Axel is like one of the people who's really championed this uh, for the idea that, well, so the, the active inference formulation is symmetric. You know, I was telling you about the, this predictability stuff earlier that like you can predict stuff about the environment given my phenotypic state. Well, that's symmetrical, right? Like you can predict something about the kind of things that, that live in an environment by looking at the physical structure of the environment. Like the, the, the relations of prediction are kind of circular in that way and certain creatures uh like ants and beavers and humans have evolved such that like we we extend our statistical models into the world like we 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 uh we augment the physical world with uh by, by allowing it to encode information that we can use to guide our behavior so think of like you know the fact that in most big cities, streets meet at right angles isn't accidental, right? It's a feature that we design, right, into the, the physical layout of our cities uh, to, to improve our predictive grip on, on them, essentially, like to make it, to make our coping with them smoother. Same goes for like, uh, you know, traffic signals and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a sense in which this story opens on to, uh, something like, and this is what we're, we're exploring in, um, in our, our current work, like the, um, this kind of opens on to a story of, uh, epistemic communities and, uh, like epistemic niche creation, 
mm. right? The, the, like we, we, we design environments uh, in order to better, uh, like to get a better predictive grip on our environments. And that, that might explain in part, like the kind of fragmentation that you see, right? Like that mm. we're, we're literally creating two different kinds of worlds that, that, that are embodying two different kinds of, well, outlooks, or we, we would, we would put it in terms of different generative models. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I, I, yeah. A direction that I'm very excited to pursue, actually. I think, you know, a lot, there's a lot to say there. Sure. And when you consider that, so I, I wrote, I haven't made it public yet, but it's, um, it's a, I guess there's two articles. One is just on the internet and control and why, how it's a human rights issue. And one is that Mm. the internet is just necessary for securing human rights. Um, And secondly, we do not like our access to it. It is, it is so vital today, but our access to it is actually, um, well, it's under threat at all times. We may not know it, but like, it could be taken away from us at any point. And in some places it has been, I mean, yeah. China is the greatest example, right. Of, of, of government censorship, but there's like dozens of countries have stopped social media or like interfered with social media and messaging apps. And when the state or when, um, you know, um, privately held interests can effectively, uh, dictate what is in one's information environment, mm-hmm. they can do a whole range of things from, manufacturing consent to well you know just changing how people think and 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 how they act in the world um and i think it's a it's a huge huge problem and one that like i don't really know what the solution is because if you know if you take the the liberal idea that you know we should be free to go out and uh do as do uh, whatever we want within reason within certain bounds but uh, you know i should be able to expose myself to whatever information I, I feel like um, as long as it's, you know, not hurting anyone or, or anything. If that's actually, if, if we agree with that, then we can't actually impose um, these informational constraints saying that, you know, it's all well and good for, for you to go ahead and do that. However, we need you to be, we need our generative models to be somewhat coherent or we will conflict. Yeah. Or, or things just break down. Yeah. I mean, like in a really deep way. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, you know, one huge issue is uh, whose principle is it that it takes it takes an order of magnitude more energy to dispel bullshit than it does to create it? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it sounds uh, about right. It's, it's someone's rule, I forget. I forget what whose rule it is. Um, but I mean, yeah, the that's a real issue. I think. Uh, you know, the I mean, I, I I'm definitely uh, not a liberal. I'm not a conservative either. So I think you can kind of situate me uh you know pretty clearly um uh, yeah no i i i don't i i i'm i'm sort of grappling with the same kind of issues that you are here like i yeah i also value freedom of, of speech and freedom of expression um uh, but on on the flip side like there, there is something like um there's like an ecology of memes you know like the 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 the, the there there's only so much like physical space that that ideas can occupy right so like the uh, um, you mean in our minds or like in on the net both, or yeah but well, on the on the net and like physically in space yeah as well I mean, they're technically the same right like on the, yeah. i mean the net is an embodiment yeah exactly it is embodied <laughs> yeah uh so i mean I, i'm i'm sensitive to that i uh i i'm very worried about 
like the creation of like these fact resistant, um, you know, bubbles. Mm. Uh, I, I, but you know, like the, the I, there's a sense in which, like, I think the 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 current information age exposes a lot of our kind of innate human inherited like evolutionarily old psychology right so you know like the what gets called virtue signaling a lot i think uh i think happens both on the left and on the right for sure for sure i mean I, i think ultimately the problem is that like we we have forgotten how to engage with ideas and what takes the place of engagement with ideas is signaling to your in group, whoever your in group is, that your values are consonant with theirs. Mm. In my in my last conversation, um, uh, we kind of touched on this, and one of the um, observations that the, the guest Matthew Pukowski made, which is you know very very um, pertinent and um, and true, is is that um, social media kind of uh, it rewards signaling but not action yeah like we're all engaged you know we're we're um incentivized to to just signal great things right or things about our lives or our ideas or whatever and that signaling is enough it doesn't really matter if we're going out and doing stuff and we need to move from signaling to action especially in this time adding the filter to your facebook picture yeah 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 exactly like calling it a day right i stand for you know breast cancer victims like oh you've just saved it you've just you've solved it and you know i I think we're all guilty of this i am myself you know absolutely and 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 that's why i'm saying like i think it's a it's it's an issue everywhere it's 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 an issue you hear about it a lot because uh like right-wing pundits accuse uh, like left-wing activists of virtue signaling a lot. But I mean, I, I think you can see the same essential cognitive strategy redeployed uh, sure. everywhere, essentially. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's something that's sort of unfortunately predicted by the kind of theory that, we would, that we're working with. All right. Um, that's pretty well, cool. Yeah, well, because like what, what, you're, what we're saying ultimately is that we're... <laughs> Action is in the surface of is in the service of generating evidence for our beliefs, essentially, right? So, like things that things that conform to our broader uh, yeah, narrative yeah, yeah. model. So, like it, it it takes a lot more cognitive energy to like confront, you know observations and data that don't provide evidence for your belief and it then to change your belief. It actually hurts. Yeah, I mean, in the and, literal sense. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like, I think of this as like, we are constructed by, of, we are information, right? Like who we are, these are the ideas, like the person I think I am is a collection of these ideas that I've kind of brought together and right. I identify with. And if I find something that I dis- that disagrees with them, I am actually being attacked in some, yeah. in some way, right? And that, I think that's where that pain comes from because it's like there's something oh, yeah. about and me it, that is it's wrong. It's a lot more complicated because, um, I mean, you know, left and right, what you're seeing today is a rise of identity-centered politics. And I, I, I don't, I, again, I don't want to repeat like, you know, kind of dumb right-wing tropes about identity politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is true that like a lot of the politics that we see today on the left and on the right concern questions essentially relating to identity, right? Yep. Uh, so, you know, I, it's, I, not, I it's not fruitful. It's not fruitful. I, I, as we spoke about earlier, um, like that you can basically categorize something an infinite number of ways. 
some categories are just kind of a bit better at like at whatever you're trying to well, do. So on the one hand, I, I don't want to compromise like, you know, activism based on legitimate, uh, you know, uh, like, you the know, suffering of a particular group and how it's basically, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, uh, you know, uh, denunciations of, you know, forms of oppression that are rooted in like, I don't know, in the US, like, you know, slavery, yeah, 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 yeah. Elsewhere, like in, in you know histories of colonialism and everything. I mean, you know, as an Australian and a Canadian, we should know a thing or two about like colonialism, <laughs> right? You know, seriously, we, we come from countries where like you know some of the only like actually quote unquote successful genocides have been yeah. carried out, right? We're, we're, Foundations we're, of we're, blood. Yeah, exactly. Where where people have been systematically exterminated, like, it, and where where like that was carried to completion. I mean, in uh, there, there are places in Canada where that was carried out against uh, First Nations people, and I mean, you know, the there's, there's the actual genocide of the conquering, yeah. like all that, and you know, the same thing uh, with uh, in Tasmania or with the uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to minimize those legitimate airings of you know, like or uh, uh, yeah, but but on the flip side, like. When when you make your identity into your thesis, it becomes very dangerous to to, to disagree or to argue about that. You know, mm. so like if if your main thing is all of, if your main thesis is like oh it's something about you know American identity, real American patriot or whatever, then it seems to me that like you know disagreement will will quickly collapse into like yeah you're attacking my identity. Yeah, like my deeply held sense of who I am. So, I mean, I, I also think it's probably not the most productive way to to frame discussions. No. On the flip side, like I, I I haven't quite squared the circle of how you how you recognize that danger on the one hand, and also uh, recognize the legitimacy of identity based, um, you know, like legitimate grievances at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, it's, it, it's a tough one. I think one way that kind of, it doesn't solve it, it doesn't, definitely doesn't solve the problem, but um, I think that a lot of this discussion of identity is rooted in uh, inequality and problems of Absolutely. equality. Yeah. And I think there's too much of a focus on uh, equality in terms of income and wealth, even though it's like a great proxy for um, well-being and all that. It's just not good enough. Um, mm. The quality of opportunity is something that we should really be focusing on more. And um, as, as I said, you know, wealth is a great proxy for that. But if you can't read, it doesn't matter how much money you have, right? Mm. Um, you don't have as ac- you don't have as much access to the world as someone who is literate, or if you have shelter, or if you're adequately nourished, or if you have access to the internet. So by focusing on, I, I really like the idea of focusing on equality of opportunity and seeing like the importance of increasing the landscape of opportunity to people. Because if you think like freedom isn't binary, right? Freedom mm-hmm. exists in, in degrees. And if, if we want, if one of the aims of society is to ensure that our citizens are flourishing, one way of ensuring that that happens is like you make them as free as possible, like in, in increase the landscape of opportunity as much as possible so that they can go and choose to do things in, to, in order to do that, you need to ensure that they have their basic needs taken care of. So, yeah. um, you know, shelter, nutrition, um, the ability to read, perhaps all these things increase the landscape of freedom. And then the individual, they know 
their map of themselves is the best, right? There's nothing better than their internal um, map of themselves. So they will choose to live a life that maximizes for their own flourishing. So if we wish to ensure that our populations are flourishing, we sort of we should kind of increase the degrees of freedom that are made available to them and let them I mean, navigate you know, the, the, world. the unfortunate thing about neoliberalism is that, you know, in, in, in the current kind of setup, what freedom means is like the freedom to choose between 36 different flavors of ice cream. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's just a bit of a, I don't think we, we have these conversations widely enough. Like what is the purpose of society? You know, what, what is government working towards? Like what does a, a good life mean? I mean, I think, you know, we might have that conversation around a campfire with a joint, you know, but it's like, it's, we don't hear our, like our politicians actually having these conversations. All I hear is this rhetoric well, I mean, about it, jobs. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, um, so I, I've been setting up a, an international neuroscience network uh, over the last year or so. And we're really trying to foreground ethical reflection. Because um, currently, I mean, you know, this whole ethics review board business is basically a, a box ticking exercise, mm. right? Where like, you know, in science, the way that it, it basically works is well, you know, when when they were like figuring out like these, uh, you know, the, the wording of these accords, right? Like the, 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 the regulate research on humans, then they involved philosophers and everything. But like, it's sort of like they settled everything, you know, wet, like at that point. And for, now we're not really thinking about like the ethical implications of our re- research. We're just making sure that no one's going to sue us. Uh, yeah. which is what the IRBs do. So we, we've effectively evacuated ethical discussion uh, from like the practice of science. Uh, and, and so, yeah, ethics usually means in science, like you, you got a board to review and it's pretty safe from a legal point of view. Like the, the, there's not going to be any like legal blowback. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a very, very thin <laughs> conception of like ethical reflection about the scientific process. I mean, I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Like they, uh, these things have really been sidelined, uh, like much to everyone's detriment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think we're going to see a resurgence in, well, ethics, ethical discussions, ethical thinking. I mean, we, I, I take that back. Like we already have, it's just like done through the guise of, you know, environmentalism and, you know, like fighting for the biosphere and, you know, humanitarianism. So I take that back. Ethics is still there. We just don't talk about it as ethics. We're like, we just appeal to, you know, human nature. Um, but I'm really excited to, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you, what I, why I wanted to speak to you. And I think we'll guide a lot of the conversations that I'll have over the next future, but uh, over, over the coming, the coming weeks and months and years, but it's just like, what are the physical um, characteristics of things that are like, what, what is the material basis for that? Which is good. You know, mm. like if you, if you take, damn, you, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, there's a question. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think like, it's, I think we have like some of a, somewhat of an idea, like just intuitively, like systems that are complex, like there seems to be a correlation between the complexity of the system, however you wish to measure it and it and its ethical value. Right. So um, Axel and I have a, an ongoing disagreement about this. Um, the, the disagreement is basically Axel thinks that morality itself can be absorbed under the free energy principle. And I don't necessarily disagree, but I, I want to push back against that as much as I can. So for the simple, the following reason, like, <laughs> I think that like 
you know, what the free energy principle, et cetera, will, will tell you is how, where the system is converging, how it's converging, like what it is converging towards essentially. Right. Like, so, uh, to know that doesn't mean that it's a good idea that things are converging in that direction though. Yeah. See, that, that's like this objective, like there is this objective morality that states that that thing that is, that you are converging towards is good. Right. It's like separate, but I see morality as like, it, it's actually emergent as well. Right. Like you, well, I don't think there's ultimately any, ultimately it may be perspectival. So if let's take this account seriously, it sort of implies that morality is embodied in a shared generative model, right? That, that like has effects in terms of like, you know, allowable cultural practices, uh, allowable ways of like living in a shared environment. But the implication of that is that like, you know, the, the kind of moral standards are ultimately relative to, you know, the shared generative model. So that like, what do you do then when there are groups of people who come into contact that don't share a generative model? Like, mm -hmm. I, I, like, I, I find it difficult to, because the scientist in me doesn't see like the, the possibility of there being like some sort of external way to arbitrate between the sets of. So well, it's irreducibly complex, right? And we cannot, like, it's, it's too chaotic. We can't predict any of this. It's not like we can just plug things into a formula and then say, oh, look, this is the more ethical decision. It's just like, exactly. it's impossible. Well, precisely. I mean, I think you can only find the most likely decision, you mm. know? Uh, well, I think, I think that's where these heuristics come in, right? Like, um, you know, thou shalt not kill. Like, the, these Ten Commandments are like, they're kind of just like guide rails for humanity because um, a lot of, it's really hard to, like, we, I think we've, we've been trying to, like, figure out what, where, like, what is good. And mm. um, I think, you know, like, these, like the, the, the rule-based stuff, um, it's just kind of like, oh, we've got a bit of an idea and like nine times out of 10, these rules are right. Um, the question of like, I, I think there is like some, some material, um, I think this can be described in terms of energy and information. Um, I'm just not too sure how, uh, mm. but I think it's like, if you were to take a world. Well, that's, where, that's what Axel ends up saying. I think I don't want to put words into his mouth, but yeah. he ends up saying something like, well, you know, it, it is about constructing the right generative model. So if, if we can, if we can just like get a picture of what the adequate moral system would look like and all share this generative model, then, you know, we would end up converging to something like, you know, yeah. a, a socially acceptable situation. So I guess this brings me to my, the, the last topic I want to cover before we wrap up and we're kind of speaking about it before, but one of the, the implications or like, I guess, logical uh, evolutions of this just applying uh, of the free energy principle, applying it to humanity is just like the need for, like we are a social species. We are engaging at um, scales that are, you know, in increasing as, as the years progress. Um, if we are trying to minimize surprise <laughs> for, for, you know, to put it, to put it in those terms, then one things one of the things that we really really need to do is integrate the sciences into our politics, into our mm -hmm. decision making, because like it is it is truly a matter of survival, um, and we may be hit with some things that, I mean, they may not be too surprising to some, but 
uh, you know, COVID or, you know, the, the array of challenges that we're faced mm. with, which actually threaten our, not only our survival, but like the survival of, you know, lots of life on, on the planet. Like it make like what the free energy principle says to me is that we actually need to take these epistemic tools, like, you know, science, like the, these frameworks, these, these ways of, of being in the world and extracting information and putting it to use and actually um, making them a part of our, uh, our culture in, in a way that's far more, like far more embedded and far more, well, I guess, useful. Than, well, that, than that's the sort currently. of ethical imperative that falls out of it. I think what the free energy principle would tell you is that, well, if you don't do this, you're no longer going to exist at non-equilibrium steady state, right? It's just that, that but that's yeah. where we're going collapse. That's where we're mm-hmm. going. So yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the issue is, uh, it, it again has to do with generative models. It's like the generative models uh, typically have a temporal depth built into them. So basically, like how many time steps into the future is your model able to model effectively? Um, and I mean, it, it may just be that like the, the, the temporal scales at which we're actually having an effect on the planet don't match up to the temporal depth of the models that we're using to deal with. So like, you know, uh, the, the, the time of everyday phenomenology is kind of a cyclical kind of like 24 hour thing where like you're, you, you'll plan maybe a few weeks or months or maybe years ahead. But like, there's a mismatch between that scale, right? Like the, the scale of the generative models that we use effectively in everyday behavior, and the scale of the effects that we're having on the environment. So I think that the 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 the, the you know the political decisions political decisions are made with like a two year window at most, right? Maybe four, yeah. depending on the country. But like, you know, it, it's what'll guarantee the next election. You know it. So the, of course there's like this huge incommensurability, right? Like, cause the, the, the timescales of our practical concerns and the timescales at which the threats, the existential threats to, you know, our continued existence as a species, like the, it's this incommensurability that I think needs to be bridged. Yeah. Uh, if there's any hope of, you know. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a, that's a really good I'm point. Skeptical. That's where I'm cynical. Uh, I think if anything, like this rise of, uh, virtue signaling, uh, you know, on the left and on the right, uh, it, it points to the fact that like, you know, the, the, the kind of disembodied, uh, ideal of a rational actor, uh, you know, it it isn't really what's at play here. Like people are, I mean, uh, I think at, was it Isaac Asimov who said, you know, our fundamental predicament is that we have um, paleolithic minds, medieval social institutions, and godlike technology, right? Like we, our minds, like our brains, were optimized to handle, you know, it's Dunbar's number, right? It's a yeah. niche of about 150 people. Yeah. Uh, time scales, you know, the, the point of culture, in part, the conservative power of culture is to obviate the need to think about long-term regularities in any kind of detail. I mean, that's the point of constructing a niche. You don't have to deal with deep yeah. time because everything that you need to deal with the, the temporality of the world is already pre-encoded in our practices and in, in the physical layout of an environment. So like the, I see no reason to believe uh, that like suddenly we're going to start shifting our perspective. If anything, I think like, you know, we, we've constructed, uh, like these, 
these informational ecologies that make us more resistant to actually, you know, challenging the depth like of, of the temporal horizon at which we're engaging with phenomena and rather just like signal to our, you know, our people like us that we're on, we're on the right side of history. We're doing this right. And they disagree because they're bad guys. Mm. I think that's far more likely that, like, I, you know, uh, I, I, maybe, maybe the promise of these meta Bayesian approaches that I was alluding to is to kind of sketch, you know, some path towards. Yeah. Like, actually like doing that without, you know, infringing upon people's freedoms, like, if you just look at the US, like they are as freedom loving. And I use that, I, I say air quotes because like, I think they've got a, a certain view of freedom that I don't think everyone would agree with. You know, like you are free if you have a gun, you, you are more free if you have, you know, you can bear arms or if you don't have your tax as you'd have to pay as much in taxes because, you know, taxes are theft. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I think that's UNB, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I just hope that like, I think one of the most important things is, as we said, like taking our, so we have evolved to exist in smaller tribes, right? But one of the wonderful things is we have developed this capacity to extract really useful information from the world and explain phenomena with it, right? Like science. And our challenge is to like take this, you know, godlike capability and use it with look i mean look just just to be a bit like self-critical so i'm not a climate scientist right i yep. I, I don't i don't i'm not just yep. full stop right so like when i when i say i believe like human made climate change is real that's an act of faith on my part yeah right uh and so, like, yeah, my, my suspicion is that that encapsulates, like, the human thought process. Like, ultimately, like, there, there's something about, like, deferring to whatever is the default belief of the community that I feel that I belong to. Uh, that's, like, the main mode of operation, even when we think that it, it yields results that we find are good, right? So, you know, I'm also part of this more, like, progressive, anti-racist, you know, yeah. feminist kind of agenda. Uh, but, you know, you, you might say that's, I, I'm like this because those are the, the ideas that are available in my eco niche. I'm just, you know, conforming to whatever is. So I think the, the person who articulates this most beautifully is um, Joseph Henrik. I really, oh, yeah. I really like, I really, really like Joe. He's great. He's a, uh, He's based at Harvard. Um, he's he's like a, a an evolutionary biologist, anthropologist, and he he's he works on the the self domestication of humans. And so he says, well, basically the the those very mechanisms that enable us to perform like these large scale feats of incredible coordination, right? The things that make us like agreeable and able to cooperate with one another are also the things that like, you know, make us susceptible to fascism and to like authoritarian dictatorships. We're agreeable. We just go with things, you know, like the not the typical Nazi wasn't like a raging fucking racist. Yeah. You know, they were just like quote unquote good people just trying not to rock the boat and just going with whatever the and so, you know, that's really what 
like I, I, I think it's, it's too easy for us to say like, Oh, well, clearly, you know, like we're on the right side of this because our mm. beliefs happen mm. to line up with whatever's the case in reality, the cognitive operations that I go through to, to say like, well, you know, I believe in man-made human-made um, climate change are essentially the same as like an anti-vaxxer going like, Oh, well, you know, like I, like I, I can't, myself verify that this is the case mm. i don't know the science like I, my 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 opinion rests on this division of labor uh that that and so yeah so I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic yeah look i've never thought about it in that way and you've just made me a little bit more pessimistic like i, I never really thought about it like that um and, and we are like what i'm doing some... is just as faith faith-based yeah as, yeah yeah Cause I have looked at them. Like I like re I just assume the experts are experts, you know, and just like, trust. That, that, but everyone assumes that their experts are experts, right? Yeah. That's the thing. That's, that's what sharing a generative model yeah. is about. But at the like, same time, like there's like, that's, that's all, that's true. But then when you think about climate change, when you think about that, we are on this bounded planet, like, you know, it's a closed system in, in many ways. And that we are, there's like 8 billion of us. A lot of us are using, I think the, the, the value, the number is like 30 times our basal metabolic rate. So like for us to live the lives that we live, we need 30 times the amount of energy our bodies needs. Like when you think about that, it kind of makes sense that things might be heating up, you know, like you don't need to like really oh, go but I'm, to, I'm not denying climate change. Of no, I, I, I know no. you're not, but like, I don't think you need to be like on this progressive side of things to actually just go through that line of reasoning. Be like, so like oh. ultimately the, the, the big filter is natural selection, right? So we can have the beliefs that we want and we can have the, the generative models that we want, but like, if we're too off, we're going to die. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's, that's the bottleneck at the end of the day. And that's also why I'm not super like optimistic because like the, the way that these shifts happen typically is massive die off. Yeah. I mean, like that's how generative models end up evolving, right? The same way that everything else ends up evolving. Like, you know, whether it's cultural selection or natural selection, like, you know, the maladaptive beliefs end up like causing negative consequences to their havers and then not uh, spread into the future. And so like, yeah, I agree. Like, you know, I, I think I have, I personally, I think I have good reason to believe in that make climate change. Uh, and I also think I have good reason to think that if we don't take it seriously as a factual matter of affairs, then there will be negative consequences. My, my fear is just that, like, even if I know this, my mode of justification is not fundamentally different uh, mm. than the one employed by people who believe in chemtrails and, you know, yeah. fluoride, gay frog stuff like you know, you, you heard Alex, yeah, Jones. Alex Jones. Have you, did you watch that podcast with him, Joe Rogan and, uh, no, not the whole Eddie thing. Bravo. Oh, I mean, God. That's, I mean, it's the, ridiculous. It's one of the funniest, know, the, the most the, ridiculous. The, fundamentally though, like the, the difference is that I have, I have more epistemic tools up my sleeve, right? Like, mm. you know, I'm a scientist. I'm able, I don't know. I don't have the exact, analytic tools that are used in climate science, but I, I do, I do know like a bullshit story just yeah. pulled out of anecdotes from, you know, rigorous yeah. kind of reviews of evidence, but like fundamentally though, like it, it's, it's sort of about, it's all about um, like the, the kind of 
the the so Joe Henrik calls them creds, credibility enhancing displays. You know, it's it it's that there's an economy of uh, of authority. You know, humans are the the only mammal species with um, a prestige system that's evolved independently of the dominant system, right? So, what, like, what was that system? I just cut out a prestige. Ah, okay, prestige. So, prestige is a kind of freely conferred power, right? Whereas, like, dominance is, you know, you listen to me because I'm going to smack you if you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Like, prestige is the kind of thing that, like, you know, Joe says uh, the the uh, the, the the top top climber at the base camp of the Himalaya, right? Like everyone wants to climb with this person yeah. uh, because it just so happens she's the best, right? She knows how to, you know, go up the mountain. She knows the path. She, she knows what to do. Like the, that, so people- Socially, can, but it's, it's, it's like, it's not that it's she's- like the best, freely conferred. Yeah. Right. But, there, so, but there's an economy of these, of authority. Like- in in almost every society, there's a series of ritualized cues that indicate who is the knowing caste, right? So, like you know, scientists wear uh, you know sarros, and doctors have their stethoscopes, and teachers, profs. I mean, less and less maybe like in the North American context, but like you know, profs will often dress up. You know, people mm-hmm. in positions of power indicate not just power, but like people in positions of epistemic authority reliably indicate with like ecologies of cues that they have this authority. Mm. And humans are just very sensitive to these cues. Uh, you know, we, so it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what the Milgram experiments, for example, um, show, I mean, it's people defer. I mean, I don't know if Milgram still works anymore. Um, I think, that, bit of, I think it's a bit dodgy. Yeah, there was like, a bit of controversy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, like uh, th- there are these experiments from social psychology that tend to show that people just defer to whatever they think is the source of authority. And I, I think that's more germane to human cognition than strenuous putting into question of whether this ecology of cues actually reflects something, mm. you know? Uh, so I, I just think it's moral luck at the end of the day. If you and I are on the right side of this kind of factual matter, it's it's not it's not because oh, of any yeah. virtue that we cultivated. We just happen to be in the right epistemic milieu uh, that allows us to make the right kind of uh, inferences. Um, yeah, but so my my fear though is that like making these kind of fact based inferences takes a lot of energy. And there are there are much fewer people who are able to make them than people who are like able to you know subscribe on YouTube and start a channel about chemtrails and whatever. So like, I mean, on the whole, I, I'm not. I, I I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I I I don't see any reason to be optimistic. <laughs> uh, yeah. to, to be to be blunt. Um, oh well, we can do our best, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I, having said that, like, I, I think that the kinds of tools that we're developing are giving us a better grip. So, for example, like, you know, uh, this, this generative, shared generative model business allows us to understand the constitution, right, and the maintenance of epistemic communities uh, in a robust way that might be amenable, we hope, to 
modeling and to like experiment. And so, you know, it, it may be that like by studying the ways in which humans reason, right. Uh, and reason on the basis of like credibility enhancing displays, right. And arbitrate between different sources of epistemic authority and so on. It may be that like, you know, through that process, mm. you know, I hope none of it's age dependent just because I don't think we have much time. I mean, it, it may be. So yeah, I know, like, Moran, who's, who's someone that I really admire in the literature. Uh, she, she's a, a theoretical neuroscientist and neuroimager. Uh, she's with the neuroimaging department at King's College. And she has this great uh, model of um, how basically the, the parameter range of your generative model becomes more and more rigid as you grow older. And that's, that's not because your brain is like deficient. It's that it's adaptive. I mean, presumably when you're middle-aged, you should, assuming like a, a, a relatively stable structure of the environment, you should have less to learn than someone who's like half your age. Yeah. So th there is a rigidifying of the generative models that's age dependent. Um, I mean, my own, my own fear has to do with like the, the rapid generational uh, shift. So like, you know, the boomers that, that get so maligned, maligned um, in the, you know, just in the media, and, you know, just abused and everything. Well, they, they grew up in another world, yeah. right? Where like, you know, journalism uh, was, uh, you know, like... Well, everyone had the same, everyone had the same informational environment, right? Like right. you just talk about what was on... Precisely because there were like three sources of information, right? So, yeah. so whereas people, uh, I don't know exactly how, how, how old you are, I'm 31. And so like, I, I grew up with the internet and with the yeah. assumption that actually like part of what it is to have a, a valid epistemic process is to vet, you know, the source of the information where you're getting this. Whereas like if you grew up in- And it's intuitive. You're just like, you look at something and it's like, this is bullshit. Like, yeah, but exactly. I, but if you grew up in an ecology where there are three sources of information, you know, like the the news at five, uh, you know, your local yeah. journal and whatever your big city journal is, like then then your your relation to sources of information and the very process by which you vet your own beliefs is going to be radically different. Yeah. So it may be what we're seeing now may be like the. I mean, you know, and I don't want to make it only into a generational thing. I mean, there, there are young conspiracy theorists, but it, it has to do with like, you know, exploiting the basic kind of, um, mm. you know, mechanisms for attributing epistemic authority. I mean, you know, you, you'll notice like Trump does this all the time, you know, like he, 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 he prefaces his sentences with uh, material that would enhance his credibility in certain communities. Right. So saying like, you know, I'm the best at no, no, no. No one understands X better than I do. Like the these these cues work in a community where typically the people who say this are the people who know. Right. Yep. So if you grew up and you were uncultured in, in a community where, you know, people who signal in this way typically are right about things then it's not surprising that you'll end up like, you know, adhering to this. And I don't only want to make it into a right wing thing. I mean, I think, uh, Oh, it's on know. the both sides for sure. For sure. It's, it's just, we live in such interesting times, you know, like well, I, I, I think, think the, we're just your issue right now is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Uh, yeah. On everyone's side. I think yeah. uh, it's just, you know, 
uh, from a philosophical point of view, I come from this uh, tradition called hermeneutics. Uh, so, uh, I mean, my favorite philosopher is uh, uh, this uh, this uh, this philosopher called Gadamer. Uh, yeah, a, a, a Gadamer's philosophy is a philosophy of interpretation. Um, so hermeneutics is sort of a corrective to phenomenology. Phenomenology says, let's start from the first person lived experience and its immediacy. Hermeneutics says there's no such thing as immediate first person experience. All experience is all, always already mediated by structures mm-hmm. of interpretation. But anyway, I, I don't want to dwell on that, but I say this because Gadamer says beautifully somewhere like the starting point of my philosophy is that my interlocutor could be correct right like i might be wrong it's mm-hmm. about interpretation and finding a common interpretation and i think that's been completely evacuated yeah. like d- discussion is about showing the other person why they're wrong and showing people on our side why we are so virtuous right yeah. like that, you know, we're really going to stick it to the libs, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, just like finger pointing and calling people yeah. whatever ism is hot today. Like the, 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 it's like, it's, it's only, it's only epistemic. This talk that we're having, this discussion is only epistemic for show. It's not really about epistemics. It's about confirming what I believe. Right. And so, so telling you who disagree with me that you have to be wrong ultimately. Right. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, 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 and about showing, you know, others that, you know, we're, we're also valid epistemic agents, you know? Yeah. I guess like, but that makes me think and I've been thinking for a while and, you know, I'm just echoing what I've heard a lot of other people say, but humility from you know, a scientific standpoint from the standpoint of um, policy, but also in our own interactions with each other is, has never been more important, right? Like that we can learn from the person that we're talking with or arguing with, but also that our actions, like we actually don't know what may happen in the world. We don't know how bad the coronavirus could be. We don't know whether or not our climate change models are actually correct. And right. given that we do not know, we need to be we need to be extra careful because things could go better than we think, but things could also go a lot worse. Yeah, precisely. And, and you know, we have to be open to. And again, I'm not saying that we have to listen to these uh, crazy denialists who, who you know cherry pick their data and who are obviously not like engaging in the same kind of scientific process that we are. But like, I especially mean like moral certainties. You know. Uh, I mean, it, it may be that the way that we see the world, even even our our you know most deeply cherished values, maybe they're off, you know, to a certain extent. And and I I think that it's the it's the self righteousness of of everyone involved in these political conversations that makes it. And you know, I, I I'm of many minds about this because on the same time, you know, at the same time, if someone's position is that like we should exterminate whatever you know group of people because of whatever, you know, bullshit yeah. reason. And that also doesn't float, you know, like I, I don't think that we, we, so it's, it's, it's all sorts of complicated and I don't have any yeah. good answers. I, 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 I just look at the problem, honestly. Yeah. Well, that's the first step to solving it, right? Mm. Yeah. Understanding it. I mean, the, the one thing we didn't discuss is, is what the, what the approach can't do. 
Um, so yeah, uh, there's good reason to think that nature, you know, life, if life exists, right, if life is a useful concept, if we don't eliminate it from our ontology, there's good reason to think that life isn't a non-equilibrium steady state process. It isn't. It isn't. Like the, 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 so like evolution isn't going anywhere, no. right? Like the, it, life is this open-ended kind of thing. That it's like it a tree. Works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it works on a process of drift, which is not predictable, you know, like, so, uh, I mean, natural selection works. There is variation, selection, retention, right? Um, so like that process of, is not, uh, so the, the technical term is ergodic. So yeah. basically yeah. ergodic so means yeah, it's there's the average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the there average is it? Yeah. Okay. So like the, so you, you know, like, so if you think of the space of all possible states of a system, like an ergodic system means that there's some density towards which the system eventually converges, right? Mm -hmm. Such that on average, um, so that, uh, the average of your measures will converge to a measure of your average. Yeah. Cause there is a density at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. So there's reason to think. And in fact, like I'm working with people who are showing this experimentally, there's reason to think that at several relevant scales, there is a non-equilibrium steady state density. One of the easy demonstrations of this is that you, I, I assume, I mean, maybe you have a different physiology from mine, but like you're roughly the same height from day to day, right? You're, your, your blood pressure is roughly the same or in the same neighborhood. Um, you know, you're all, you have these, these, uh, states that you revisit frequently, you know, that such that you can say that there's something like a phenotype, right. That you return to characteristically, but evolution itself is, is an open-ended process that might not have such a, like an end point. Right. Yeah. So, so like, Right now, the, the, the formulation is in terms of non-equilibrium steady state systems, but it doesn't extend to non-equilibrium non-steady state systems. So, so, the, the way so given the time scale, we're not non-steady. So like, it, it depends on your temporal scale then. Yeah, precisely. There's, yeah, there's yeah, a scale okay. at which this doesn't apply. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, like it, it may be that like the, the, the more socially interesting stuff that you're interested in can't be addressed by this framework for precisely that reason. What basically, if, if the attractor doesn't exist yet, there's nothing you can do variationally. Like you're, 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 there's nothing to converge to. Mm. Right. Well, it's, it's, well it's sort of, right. I, I agree. There's no, there's no point of convergence. However, one, Tenant, you could say, is the need to survive, right? And a part of that sure. is diversity of approaches. So, well, so you can still get something out of it. So you can say, like, there are, like, you can say there are something like different attractors that are competing, right? So there's the liberal, the progressive, and the conservative kind of attractors that are sort of competing for where the overall trajectory that you might say that, but look, like, what I want to say is something like, well, you, you can use the current formulation to model something like feudal France, but not France during like the revolution and mm -hmm. the terror when, when there, there just isn't a clear attractor. Like, so the entire approach rests on being able to write down this non-equilibrium steady state density, like this, 
the phenotype. If you're yeah. able to characterize the phenotype, then you can yeah, use this. Well, that's the, that's the problem, that. right? Like life is a process. It's not discrete. It's like Precisely. we are constantly becoming, I mean, and I, I don't, I, the way I think about life um, and death more specifically is that we don't really die. Like we, like life is just about information, creation, consolidation and propagation. And we right. are just, a, we are just passing the baton, right? Like we live on through our genetic code, but also through the culture, the ideas. Yeah, precisely. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All, all I'm saying is that like, you know, and, and as an advocate of the approach, we're, I, I also want to hope that there, there's a way to extend the, the formalism to non-steady state systems. But if you're asking me like, what can't this do? Because it does seem like it can do almost everything. Well, so what can't it do? The historical change. Mm can't do it right now. Like I, 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 for principled reasons, this isn't like an accident that like, so, you know, uh, uh, the, the approach hasn't yet been applied to the formation of epistemic communities. That's not a principled limitation. It's just that it hasn't been done yet. So that's what we're doing. Well, you've got this hammer and there's so many nails now, right? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But like this may be a principled limitation. It, it may be that this kind of approach can, is only conceivable for non-equilibrium steady state system. And certainly the current mathematical formulation, even in Carl's like totally integrative 2020 like monograph that really contains like the whole approach, even there, like it's formulated in terms of non-equilibrium steady state. So it may be that like, and this is what's frustrating for me as a scientist, like maybe the most important questions are not, can't be addressed in this kind of framework because at least the most ethically important questions, mm. maybe those have to do with when the attractor hasn't consolidated yet. Maybe, I don't know. Or if there even <laughs> is one, right? Like, like that's, I think that's exactly. one of the problems of like ethics in general. It's like, well, is there an objective good? And like, what are we moving towards? And like, I think in a way it's kind of the wrong question. I don't think there is an objective good. Like if you take a purely materials, um, materials approach, like we have just like, minimizing entropy locally and trying to do the best possible as we move up scales. And when I say we, right. I mean life in general, right? And that morality is emergent. And like, I think like, obviously we'd say that like that, which is more complex or that, you know, like life is good. Like if you think of the world with life or no life, we'd say that life is good. We are obviously biased, but I don't think there's anything wrong there. Like to say there's, mm. there's that there's no, like if you take this perspective that we've just kind of emerged from soup and morality has come with it and that there may, I believe that there would be things that are, that all forms of life, intelligent life would think would deem to be of moral worth. So you mm. can think of that as objectively moral, but like to, to see there as being objective morality extricated from life. I just, just I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah, no, like, I, I agree. And that's consonant with the, the framework that we're developing since from, from our vantage point, uh, morality is just encoded in a specific kind of shared generative model, you know? Um, so, w- w- so my question, so let's say there's two worlds, right? And I know that I have to choose between one and I've got, um, a flourishing ecosystem, the Amazonian rainforest, or I've got a shitty one, like a desert, right? I just say one of them has to exist. Which one would exist? Everyone would choose the, the Amazon Amazon rainforest one. Not right? everyone. If you're a Bedouin, I, you'll prefer the desert. Yeah, but I think like they are, like, I think on average, 
and I think the average is important, right? Because it depends on what you've like, um, you're adapted to. Um, like, I think that we are like, we have moral intuitions that point us in the direction of that, which promotes order and survival and the increasing. Of yeah. But here's, the here's the rub. Uh, like that is defined in terms of the non-equilibrium steady state density. So you're, you're, you're still not out of the woods. It's not objective. Uh, like the, the good is just defined in terms of like, you know, yeah, what I expect to sense most of the time. And like our bodies adapt to this. So I'm a Canadian, like, you know, when it's five degrees Celsius outside, I can go outside in a, in a t-shirt and I'm totally fine. Like, but I don't handle the heat well. Like yeah. when I went to Australia, Jesus Christ, like I went in February and oh. Sydney just kicked my ass. Like I, I just can't handle this 40 degree heat. So I lived in Malaysia, right? And I'm like you, I can, I can handle the cold, but the heat just ruins me. So I'm just, I thought I had a sweating problem, but I just realized I was just in the wrong country. Well, but your body does adapt. I mean, like after several months of this, you do start sweating less. And that's what I mean though, is like the, the, the you know, it's all about the complete package of priors that you embody. So the, the, there really isn't a way to say, well, this is good and this is bad. I mean, you know, think of like a preference for spicy foods. I mean, it's even yeah. or, or sadomasochism as a sex thing. I mean, it, it's it's just it's just the case that like, you know, the, the, there's no objective kind of mapping. It's just whatever is, you know, like whatever is available and whatever can lead to like a target configuration. Mm. I mean, the, the, the bit that I kind of skipped over um, for the social stuff is that like what sharing a generative model allows you to do at the end, since you're sharing all your expectations is to arrive at the same target configuration. So all of these multi-scale models, they rest on the idea that a bunch of components sharing a generative model, if they engage in individual inference, they can still reach this kind of target configuration. So that's how all of this morphogenesis, cellular differentiation stuff in active inference yeah. works. And when I met Carl, what made my nose bleed initially was him telling me, you know, the exact same mathematics that we use in the morphogenesis stuff, you could use in the social uh, stuff because it's, it's, it's sharing a generative model. It's just that in one case, the generative model is a metaphor for a shared genetic and epigenetic code, mm. right? Like when, when what you're modeling is like cellular differentiation, the genetic code is a shared generative model that tells every cell, well, what kind of thing should you expect to sense given the kind of cell that you are, right? So the, the same, the very same mathematical framework applies to social dynamics. It's just that rather than, uh, you know, what kind of, you know, <laughs> intercellular, signaling you're expecting it's what kind of social cues do i expect mm. to see right but it's the same idea yeah it's yeah yeah you arrive at a target configuration by sharing a generative model and the twist for the whole multi-scale story is that like the this can be reiterated infinitely so your your cells share expectations but cell networks shall share expectations organ networks you know organisms yeah. smaller social groups like the family unit larger social groups like a like a like a community like all of these can be cast as like successive recursively nested levels uh of a system that, that at each level share the same generative model and they're all and doing the same thing cell, for example is is a cell that doesn't right mm. so like a cancer cell doesn't have the same generative model as your other cells 
because it's, it's genetic material has been altered, you know? So that's really the perspective from which I'm coming to understand like yeah. social dynamics. It's also why I'm so pessimistic, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> is, I mean, the, the thing that you see is that you need to share a generative model to, for there to, to be a target configuration, right? Like the, the, the shared generative model is what induces the non-equilibrium steady state at the superordinate level. The fact that we all share the same generative model means that our, our, our behavior will look as if it's converging towards some kind of phenotype at the highest. So that's level. how you get co- like self-organization that scales. Like yeah, exactly. Through, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That, that's what draw me, drew me into the free energy principle initially. So we need that at a, at a global, like at a planetary level now. Yeah, but so, but then the question is, can we construct a generative model that's both complex enough to like capture this kind of, you know, the, the model is complex enough to capture the complexity of the phenomenon, but also transmissible. You know, like one of the big problems that we're having right now in the approach is that like this all rests on like this high flying. One of the things that people don't get about this is that like it builds on quantum mechanics. It builds on classical mechanics. It builds on thermodynamics. So it's much more complicated than quantum mechanics. So like, you know, there's a, there's a transmission issue that gets in the way at some point because like Mm. not, not everyone can be expected to, to like assimilate that level. Well, like that's why I wanted to have this conversation because like I'm, I can like read stuff and understand it. Like generally like not like I'm I'm no genius, but like sometimes I can read stuff and sort of get the picture, but this stuff is a bit impenetrable. Like I don't have a mathematics, mathematical background. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like the math is required. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not like a gloss. It's that like yeah. it's sort of like look. If I ask you, you know, bees make honeycombs, right? Yeah. Why are honeycombs shaped the way they are? Uh, strength and space it's, filling. Yes, precisely. It's space filling. It's it's that hexagons are uh, like. One of the one of the geometrically optimal ways to tessellate or to completely cover a two-dimensional space. So in this case, it's a bit of math that explains the behavior. Yeah. It's that like y- you need to appeal to the mathematical fact that hex- hexagons can completely tessellate a two D surface, and this can be generalized into three dimensions, right? Like you need that piece of math to explain the behavior of bees. So what math do I need to know? I mean, the only way to do that is to like really slowly go through the literature. I mean, I've been doing this, like I've, I've just been doing active inference stuff basically since 2014 and I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, uh, the, the really it's a multidisciplinary approach. Like there are people from computer science, there are people from physics, there are people from philosophy and from anthropology. And like the, the full picture is bigger than any, any one person with their tool set can address. Well, Maxwell, I think I've, I've taken a, a decent chunk of your time today. So, um, I guess. Very we'll, we'll enjoyable. Wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been lots of fun. Um, if people want to find out about your work, keep up to date with it. Um, where should they go online? Uh, how can they find you online? Um, uh, well, I mean, I, I'm on, um, ResearchGate and academia.edu, but all of my research basically, 
yeah, essentially everything I've ever written is available either um, as a preprint um, or um, open access. Uh, actually, the vast majority of my publications are available open access. So I like to say that my hockey card is my Google Scholar account. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, I'll link it, that. I'll link the Twitter account if you want. Um, yeah, please. I, I, yeah. I, I'm also on Twitter. Um, I Twitter's uh, my public kind of academic thing. So like, uh, I, I keep uh, I keep everyone up to date. Like when this is released, I'll, I'll I'll advertise it on my Twitter. So yeah, Twitter's the best way to keep like in the loop. But uh, like all of my work is accessible on my Google Scholar um, account. Like you'll, you'll find uh, links to all of the manuscripts for free. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're yeah, really- That's been wonderful. <laughs> that's been good. Because I mean, I had to yeah, do some I, research for this. So <laughs> it's nice actually. It's, it's nice to be able to access it. Is. I mean, uh, you know, we, 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 we are definitely not in favor of paywalls and stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, all of my stuff is accessible. So yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for, thank you for the invitation. Honestly, Sam, this has uh, been very, very enjoyable. And, yeah, it's uh, been good fun. It's been good fun. Thanks for taking yeah. the time. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll do it again sometime soon. Yeah. I'd love to. And whenever you want me back, uh, it's, it, it, it was really a pleasure. So, awesome. uh, yeah, let's do it again. All right. Well, thank you again to Maxwell for taking the time to have a chat. I hope you enjoyed that mammoth episode. If you would like to follow up on some of the things discussed uh, in my conversation with Maxwell, please head to the show notes at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, you can find out different ways of doing so there. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter there as well. Anyway, until next time, thank you for listening.